Hello and welcome to another episode of Grange TV. Uh, we have with us a very, very, very special guest today. Um, he's an active competitor in MMA from 95 to 2010. He's a Pride UFC Shudo Valetudo Japan veteran, ADCC competitor, um, the Shudo heavyweight champion of the world, the um, Japanese racquetball champion, if I'm not mistaken. You won all Japan, rac you were all Japan racquetball champion? Yeah, yeah, before I started fighting. <laughs> yeah, and you were also in the film, uh, in the feature film, Rites of Passage, uh, and you were author of Live as a Man, Die as a Man, Become a Man. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are some accomplishments that I've uh, missed, but I'm sure we'll... Ha any, any accomplishments that I missed right off the top of your head like that? No, that's about it. I guess. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, and you you owned and operated an, a number of your purebred gyms. So your businessman. Oh, yes, yeah, purebred, the purebred gyms. Yeah, so businessman, entrepreneur. Again, another one of these uh, annoying overachievers that we have on this podcast. Um, so, Mr. Ensign Inoue, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. Um, man, I, I don't know where, really where to start with with your life and career, I suppose. Can we start with uh, what it was like for you growing up in Hawaii, I believe, um, as a as a Japan? Your your mom and dad are Japanese. Yes, my mom and my um, they're American, but they're Japanese blood. So my uh, great grandparents were actually Japanese citizens that moved over to um, Hawaii. Okay, in I'm going to kind of go back and forward. So you move, you ended up moving to Japan. But in Hawaii, did, did you ever experience like a kind of displacement in the fact that in Hawaii, you, you may have been seen as a Japanese, not a Hawaiian per se. And then in Japan, were you accepted as a Japanese or were you always an outsider? Well, Hawaii, Hawaii um, the thing with Hawaii is a little different is uh, it's very diverse in the different races that we have in Hawaii. So there's all a mixture. It's, they call it like the melting pot of America where we have all different races. We have Chinese, Japanese, Filipinos, Samoans, Tongans. They're all mixed together. So as far as prejudice, there was really um, not much prejudice being uh, Asian. But there was, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, back in the day where, the, you know, the Asians were quiet and they were smaller. So they were, um, they were bullied a lot, picked on um, money taken from them from the Hawaiians. So... Um, as far as there's no actually prejudice, it was just uh, the fact that we're very um, smaller in stature as far as physically, and you know we're we're hijacked in school. So there was a point in my life um, being Asian, you know, being targeted by the bigger Hawaiians, where you either it was like almost fight or flight. You know, you either fight back or you run and give them always give them your money every single time they ask. You know, so. That was the furthest, that was the most part of, you know, the difficulties of growing up as an Asian. We're a lot smaller in uh, Hawaii. What, what's it like? So so run me through your, your childhood. Like, so say, for example, if we were at school together, who, who were you at school? Like, what what kind of kid were you? Were you? I was, uh, um, I academically was really good. I was always in the top classes in math. <clears throat> you know, you know, in grade school, they separate you into different, like the, the um, higher class and the lower class. I was always in the higher class, so at the, academically I was good. But as a child, I was really um, 
a rascal. I really like to play around. I, I love to get in, do mischievous, do mischievous things, get in trouble. So I was a good student, but I think behavioral problems, maybe I would have a lot of, my parents would have a lot of problems with the teachers having to um, call them in for a parent-teacher conference where, you know, I'm bothering the student or I'm making too much noise. I'm not listening to them. <laughs> were, were you and Egan close? Yeah, me and Egan were close. Um, fighting actually was what really brought us closer together. We're really um, two different types of people. Egan's more the safe, uh, quiet, um, honor roll, class president. And I was more the, the radical, um, real rebellious uh, brother that, um, you know, didn't get... If they, if they looked at Egan, they thought, oh, good class president. They looked at me, it was like, oh, sergeant in arms, you know, keep things <laughs> in control. How much older is Egan than you? Egan's two years older. Because... He he's he's a very interesting person as well because he he's he was also a racquetball player. He um, martial arts. He was a free diver as well. Is that am I correct with this, or have I got him wrong with someone else? Yeah, he yeah. could free dive. Well, as far as racquetball, Egan was actually the racquetball player. I was someone trying to be like Egan, never ever attaining the the level that he's gotten to. But um, Egan Egan is a real. Um, special individual whenever he pursues something whenever first of all whenever he gets interested in something he goes full on and once he decides to go full on in something he'll go to like a real elite level i mean as far as you know what i can recall he um not just the martial arts um but his racquetball he was he became the number one in the world yeah he, 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 egan was one of those people you know like i i when i, I used to watch him like back in the day and he made me, he, you know, people motivate you to do stuff. He made me not want to do anything because, like, he's like a good looking dude. He's good at racquetball. <laughs> he's fucking good at free diving. He's a good surfer. He, he's he, even in jujitsu. I think people don't like he, he has wins like over Henzo Gracie in, in Abu Dhabi. Like, and I think, like, dude, like, fuck it. I'm not, I'm not going to do anything. You know what I mean? Like, he's just, <laughs> he's one of those dudes, man. Did you see what he's doing now on his Instagram and stuff? No, I didn't. I didn't. He's doing this thing called foil boarding. You know? And he started this thing before anyone knew what foil boarding was, like three years ago. What's foil boarding? But, yeah, yeah, most of them people still don't know. But it's like a surfboard. But there's a fin that goes below the board. Yeah, I've seen and it. You actually... It actually hovers you. And yeah, you yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Damn, like four or five feet above the water. No, you know, now that you say it, because I didn't know that it was called foil boarding, but I live like right on the water on the New South Wales South Coast here in Australia, and I'm learning ah. to surf. I'm learning to surf, and there was a dude out there with that. Now, as soon as now that you said what it was, a guy said to me, "Be careful, because that foil board I will chop you in half." You know, with a big, big ass fin. But um, he, yeah. he so he was doing that back in the day before it was trendy kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but that I hear that's even like I heard that's even harder than surfing. Are you a good surfer? No, I used to surf when I was uh, younger, but because of my the last time I went to Hawaii, I know actually like two years ago when I went to Hawaii, uh, my my girl started surfing, so I took her out to go surf with Egan, and fuck, I couldn't believe it. My my shoulder, my <laughs> the replacement, my shoulder, I couldn't paddle. I couldn't get this hand out of the water. From a pre-existing injury? 
Yeah, from fighting, from injuring fighting that I never really took care of. You know that, like with with surfing, people don't understand. Like just paddling out is such a workout. It's just yeah. fucking insane. Like I'm reasonably fit. I'm nothing special, but when I um when I started now trying to paddle out, like I'm trying to paddle out and. Like there's little kids, like six, seven year olds. They paddle right past me, and then that's bad. But the the worst one is I'm paddling, and then there's like sixty and seventy year old people paddle past me on this side, and like give me tips as they keep going. And I'm thinking, like, man, I'm gonna fucking die here. I'm not. <laughs> it's like a it's like a conditioning that your body has to get conditioned to, yeah. Hundred percent, yeah, yeah. How's the How's the, after having a nice session of surfing, how's the fucking paddle in, man? <laughs> Isn't that the worst? <laughs> Fuck. You, you, know, you know what's the worst, man, is when you paddle all the way and then you try and catch a wave because I'm shit, I can't catch him, and you fall and you do, so you don't get the ride and then you go all the way in or something and you have to, you know, you're going to have to paddle all the way back out. But paddling in is hard. <laughs> paddling in back to the beach, you mean, eh? If there's currents or whatever, yeah, yeah it's fuck and you get smashed too sometimes when you're when you're just beginning let me catch the after you catch the wave as far as you can ride it and then there's no more breaks and you gotta paddle the rest of the way in that's a fucking area it's like every inch you move it's a fucking chore huh yeah yeah, (laughs) because you're you're smashed um so you growing up what was growing up in hawaii like for you um we're beach boys, uh, a lot of lot of diving, a lot of surfing. Um, there was, I don't think there's like a, maybe there's a day out of the, there's a, maybe one day out of the week where I wouldn't jump into the ocean. So for me, moving to Japan where there's no access really to the ocean unless you live on the coast, I never imagined myself being somewhere that uh, I wasn't um, able to access the ocean every day. You know, like Hawaii, 24 365 days a year you can swim you know but in japan man forget swimming in the winter you know so for me it's this uh i've I've surprised myself that i've been here for 30 years and now consider this my home how much do you miss hawaii though um i think i in the beginning in the first 10 years i think i missed hawaii a lot but as uh i've been in japan i've i've grew fond of the people, the country, um, even like the seasons changing, you know, the, the, I'd hate the summers, but you know, winters, snow, you know, fall in Hawaii, you don't see any, 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 uh, seasons change. So I don't think I miss Hawaii. I mean, when I get back to Hawaii, it's always nice to be home, but my longing is always to come back to Japan. So, so I think- in your heart, Japan's home. Yes, there. I don't know when it happened, but there was a transition in me that went from my heart was in Hawaii to my heart is now in Japan. So, so when did that connection occur? Because you you moved over there relatively young to play racquetball. Am I correct? Yes, I moved there when I was uh, twenty three. And how and, did that connection um, to Japan occur? That you went, fuck, I'm Japanese. Or- well, it's, it's real ironic because when I first got to Japan, there was a it went the whole t- opposite direction. I really didn't like Japan. Um, I it was it was a shock for me because when I uh, you know in Hawaii there's all different races. So what nationality are you? Everyone's American, but for, for some reason in Hawaii when we were kids we'd say our race, 
what nationality are you? I thought nationality was Japanese. I thought my nationality was Japanese, although I'm holding an American passport. So I consider myself Japanese. You know, I had friends that are Hawaiians, Chinese, Filipinos, but we always, I'm Japanese, you're Filipino. You know, it was always like that. We, we classified ourselves. Whenever we asked nationality, it was always Japanese. So I was always Japanese. I, I, the big shock for me was to come to Japan and they tell me I'm not Japanese. And it was the first time in my life I was called American. I was like, oh shit, I guess I am American, but I'm more, I'm from Hawaii, I'm Japanese. That, that's, what I was, said, no, Japanese. that's what I was touching upon earlier when I was asking if they, you felt that displacement in when you got there feeling like, fuck, I thought I was Japanese, but apparently I'm not. Yeah, in Japan. Yeah. In Hawaii, there was no displacement, but in Japan, yeah, there's a huge, I mean, you know, Japan, the, no matter where you're from, if you're not from Japan, you're called a gaijin, which is translated as an outside person. So it's a very, it's, it's a very open type of xenophobia in Japan. I, I've been to Japan a whole bunch of times, like probably six, seven times. Love Japan. I absolutely love it. But I've had friends that live there and everything, and that's one of the things they say to me is like, dude, no matter how long you're here, you'll never, ever be, apart from the fact I don't look Japanese, but like you look Japanese, my wife is, is Asian, and no matter how long she's there or how long I'm there, you'll never be Japanese. Is that correct? Yeah, well, see, Japan, it's it's nearly impossible to break into the Japanese hearts and, and accept you. But if you are able to, they hold on to you. You know, like Japan, the whole system is protecting the Japanese people. I mean, it sucks as a foreigner coming in. There's a lot of injustices that happen. You know, you can't own a house. You can't own a car. You can't, you know. <clears throat> There's a lot of stuff that not being Japanese, you know, I can get a green card, but as soon as I get arrested for for any type of offense, my green card is canceled. So, you know, it, there's so many injustices that happen, but when you're taken in, you're really taken in. And I was fortunate enough to be <clears throat> taken in by the fans, you know, most so the people who know me here, I mean, not only consider me a Japanese person, they consider me they, I've heard it a lot of times. They tell me I'm more Japanese than Japanese. Do you think that's like one of those things where you look, it's like, um, you know, when you you're born again, you know, like the, the Christians that are that are born again and they become like more hardcore. Did you always feel that connection to the Japanese culture, or did you just go there and then it just came out of nowhere, kind of thing? Like uh, growing up, so, sorry, growing up in Hawaii, did you feel that you had to be you, that you were repping? the Japanese culture in Hawaii and was that a connection or just yeah well when in Japan our parents you know they held on to a lot of Japanese beliefs and cultures so um, yeah I, I did feel I was Japanese I, I was representing the Japanese you know like um, when we get into street fights with the Samoans it's like yeah fuck Japanese aren't as strong but they're smarter you know I mean always the Japanese this is Japanese this is Japanese that and when I got here it was like I was it was so. It was such a huge uh, change for me because from Japanese, I was more trying to prove that I'm not Japanese and I'm American. And and how? If you, look, if you look at the beginning of my fights. I was wearing red, white, and blue shorts. Yes, you so were. Tight. I, I wore those because I didn't want them to think I'm Japanese. But then that's how. But then the Yamato, Yamato Damashi. Do I, do I pronounce that correctly? The Yamato Damashi spirit thing was was born at 
after that or do you feel well, you always happened, had that what happened with that was i was really resenting japan because when i was trying to live it's frozen the visa owning things you know there was so much there was so much things that you couldn't do be or, or made it much more difficult because you're a foreigner so i resented that and i also got real um to another level of resentment when you know all these rules against me had made it really difficult to live there and when i when i finally got in and i got famous you know the first fight i got it was like fuck this guy knows gracie jiu-jitsu and it's like all of a sudden they're like they're wanting to put me down as japanese national and they're saying they're the whole big article on my first fight was japanese person knows gracie jiu-jitsu and it's like Oh, you guys, up until now, when I'm trying to live here teaching English and all this, you, I'm, I'm considered a foreigner, so I don't have all the privileges of the Japanese. They even charge you more tax because you're a foreigner. It's like, wow, now that I'm famous, you guys want me in Japanese. Fuck you. I'm American. That's why I wear the red, white, and blue shorts. But there was a level of um, not being educated about how the Japanese people are. I just took it. I resented it because I felt like they're prejudiced. They're, 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 they have this thing against foreigners. But then when I started living here longer, <clears throat> I noticed it's not necessarily prejudice, but it's more um, the, the, the protecting the Japanese person. Right, right. And, and yeah, and, and it's like you, you can kind of see why because you have um, – you have this, you know, you know, like how they say that a few bad apples can ruin it for the rest of us. You know, there's, you have a lot of foreigners that come into Japan, and because the Japanese are real quiet and they don't speak up, you know, they they take advantage of that. They get boisterous, they get rude. I still see foreigners like sitting in the, <clears throat> sitting in the elderly seats on the train, putting their feet up on t. They don't, res you know, and and sometimes. In America, it's not bad, you know. Like sometimes they put their feet up on the coffee table in someone's house, and it's like maybe it's okay in their culture, but they need to, you know. Why you know how they're saying when in Rome, man? You, you yeah, hundred percent. Understand the the culture, yeah. Yeah, I find I guess that's probably I don't know. I've always I've always loved Japan. I've never had a bad experience there, and um, I, I I've never like when people say you know like it's going to you know the culture thing on this. I've never had a problem with that. Like I wouldn't go to your house. And irrespective of what, you know, if, if you ask for something ridiculous, I just won't go. But if if you're eating with chopsticks, man, I want to eat with chopsticks. If you're going to, like, I've never really felt that I have to, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's not really a difficult thing. Fuck, man, you're going to another country. Just do what's being asked. Can I ask you to speak on um, Yamato Damashi? Because it's a, am I saying that right? Am I messing that up? Yamato Damashi? No, you're saying it good. It's good. It's exactly how it's said. Okay, can we can we can we speak on that? Because it's something that I've I've been interested in and forever with watching you fight and and I, I want to I'll go into it a little bit later on. But even outside of fighting is stuff that I think that's that's the part that people miss as well. Like, um, but can you can you speak to that a little bit? Okay, to go back in the history of Yamato Damashi, um. Right now, Japan, if you've been here, you probably know Japan is called Nihon. Yep. Right? Yep. Well, back in the day, back in the day in the, the samurai era, it was called Yamato. And uh, the word Tamashi is spirit. 
So translated, it, it, it's translated as the Japanese spirit. So the the thing about that is you can't look at the modern day Japanese and look at the kids nowadays and say, oh, okay. So Yamadama stands for those people. No, it doesn't. It stands for the days of the samurai. So it's um, translated into samurai spirit. And the word um, as a whole was the, was abolished after the war. When America came and took over, they were, um, they were forbidden to you know speak too proudly of Japan. They were forbidden to go out of the country for war. They were forbidden to speak highly of Japan. Like Yamato Damashi was a word that was not supposed to be used because you're talking Japanese spirit and America didn't want you to do that. They wanted to subdue the Japanese people. So there was a group of people that they're, they're, they're the right wingers. You know, if you've been in Japan, you see yeah, yeah. buses with big flags on them. They're probably worse than Yakuza to have problems with. But they the, These are, are the, the far right, the far right, the extreme right. Far right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they held on so strongly to the Japanese tradition. I mean, you know, standing up for fuck America, Japan, we still stand on our own. So they are the ones who really um, started using that word a lot. So when a reporter who understood the word more deeply than just the right wingist, the right wing activist, he actually brought the name to me and said, hey, when I hear you talk and I see you fight the one word comes into my head is Yamato Damashi and I was like wow what does that mean and he goes well he kind of translated to me as the fighting spirit you know the, the spirit that never gives up so I thought oh that's cool that sounds like a cool name I never knew the depth of the word until I started looking looking into it and when I started looking into it you know Yamato Damashi is the is not just the samurai spirit but it's the the being a, a, a life of honor the, the samurai live with honor so it's like having an honorable life, which includes integrity, of course, you know, compassion, loyalty, you know, that type of stuff. So when when I felt that I was named that, I felt like it was I was probably named more for my fighting spirit. But it, something about the word just started, um, you know, taking over my 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 life, and and it, it started. Instead of me representing the word, I feel the word has guided me into a better life. So it was it was interesting because when I first um, used the word, is I didn't really know the meaning when I first used it. I was going to the UFC 13 in 19, uh, 1997. It was in Augusta, Georgia, going to America. And I just felt the responsibility to represent Japan because my whole martial arts as a professional was born in Japan. And the opportunity to fight in the UFC was uh, because of my training in Japan. So I wanted to represent Japan as a fighter going over to America. So I, my brother is actually Egan is the one who had the idea. He had this idea about how about we put make a T-shirt with kanji right across. I was like, that sounds cool. So we had all these ideas, kamikaze, but it's kind of like a crazy person. Yeah, kamikaze yeah, yeah, yeah. Like someone like this. So okay, uh, maybe that's not cool. Ichiban, but it's like, ah, oh, but that's real boring. There's like one line on the first kanji. So, and then he had this idea wow, three kanjis, Yamato Damashi. Would that be a cool shirt? So, it was just pretty much with the way we first made the first shirts was only because we wanted to represent Japan and we thought that kanji would look real cool on the chest. So, when I first made the shirt, 
we, I wore it to UFC 13. I did well, and then we and then we had people. Some we had a lot of fans calling to see if we're selling the shirt. So when when that happened, I thought, okay, maybe I should sell the shirt. When I started talking to some of my other my other students in the gym about the idea, ninety percent of them shied away from it, saying, <laughs> "I don't want to wear that shirt because that the, people are gonna think I'm yakuza or they call it uyoku." Which is a right wingist. So like, I don't want to. I, it's it's going to look weird. So you know, you know, that you was know the first reaction. You know, one of the things is when um, just because of, of how I am, like ninety seven. You that was when you fought uh, Royce Algiers in. Is that am I correct? So so yeah. fast forward a few years, maybe early, uh, maybe ninety nine. You know, here in Australia, I'd go and get the VHS tapes, right, of the UFC and Pride. Yeah, VHS. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And and so I watched those fights, right? I watched all your fights. And I was like, what does Yamato, Yamato Damashi mean? And so I looked it up and it was like, you know, but that was fuck, probably before internet properly, you know, so I'd have to go to the library and get the the thing. Yeah. And yeah. and it was dude, but this like Google wasn't really a thing, you know what I mean? Like yeah. so I had to go like library, type the thing in, find the book, read up Yamato Damashi. And all I could read about was like extreme hardcore right wingers, and I was like, "Fuck, this is this is interesting." But then the way you spoke, it wasn't like, um, and I don't want to make this; it's not a political um, thing. But I'm saying like you didn't sound like a like an extreme right wing yeah, 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 Japanese person. And I remember saying to my mate, and um, if he's watching this, like you know, he'll remember because we were like, "What do you think's up with that guy, with that Japanese guy?" Like. He seems like to be no, no, no offense. Don't, don't get angry at me. But I was like, he seems to be mixed up because, like, what he's saying and the way he is, he seems him and his brother seem like good guys. But he's rocking this hardcore right wing thing so hard. You know what I mean? And we were both confused. He, he, like, he's actually my brother in law. Uh, the the guy ends up ended up being my brother in law. And we were both like, "Fuck! What? What do you think that guy's goal is?" But now I'm so glad. But I, I mean, since then I know. I know I followed you enough to know that you're actually talking about the Japanese spirit, but it, it was funny to me because I was like, "He's this guy in Australia in like the year 2001, looking it up, going, fuck, I think Ensign's confused in here.' <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, hey, you know the funny thing is, it's not just you guys. Even in Japan, the people in Japan were confused. They didn't under, you know, it's so funny because. After the World War II, when Japan, um, when America abolished the word, the Japanese listened so so properly that a lot of the young generation didn't understand what the word was, and when they saw it, they 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 they, they reflected it to the right wingers. So a lot of my students were didn't want to wear the shirt because they didn't want to be represented like that, <clears throat> and like for example. When if I would wear the shirt, when I first made the shirts, when I walked through like Shibuya or you know somewhere crowded, I'd get a lot of people chuckling, laughing, staring at me, looking at the shirt, pointing at me. You know, people didn't understand the word, and what really um, I understood the word, and I, I just knew that these people were ignorant and didn't understand the word. You know, I asked when I go to interviews and I, you know, the reporter starts talking to me about something, I stop and I say, "Hey, I have a question for you." They say, "What?" I said. What does Yamato Damashi mean exactly? They couldn't answer it. They looked at me like, uh, never give up. Strong spirit. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much all they could, uh, 
they could do. They, they really didn't understand the word. It was uh, real interesting one day. I was at a TV show in Japan. I went into the bathroom at the urinals. It was, it's just weird that it was at the urinals, but I'm just telling you exactly how <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was standing at the urinal, and there was an older, elder guy, probably about 70, taking a pee right next to me. He looked at me, and he goes, as we're peeing, he looked at me and goes, Enzininoi. And I let it, I let it kind of bounce at Adomo. And he goes, Arigato. And I'm like, whoa, Arigato? What do you mean, Arigato? Arigato, doshite. Why, why are you asking me that? Why are you telling me that? He said, thank you from the bottom of my heart for bringing Yamato Damashi back, bringing that word back. And I do feel today that I play as, as although I'm just one person, just one fighter, I play a huge part in Japan for having more that this now this young generation understanding the true meaning of the word. And so when when it's we talk- no longer it's no longer it's no longer used as just a right 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 wing extremist. You got like the Olympic soccer team using it. You know, they understand what it is now, the the pride of Japan, the Japan spirit. It's a proud thing now. It's not something to be laughed at or be ashamed of anymore. And I, I, I do feel, and I do feel privileged to be able to say that I have probably played a huge part in that. When, when you're speaking about Yamato Domashi, yeah, there, there's also like kind of going into your fights, but then you know we're going to come back and forwards between stuff because it's, it's something that that you know hearing you speak, reading interviews. To be fair, mainly I read a lot of your interviews back back in the day, you know. Um, but say when you talk about, let's talk about the fight, which I'm sure you've spoken about this fight probably 35 million times. But um, correct me if I'm wrong and if I'm paraphrasing. I am paraphrasing, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you fought Eagle Vachemchin. And in that fight, it was about you facing your fears, you you growing as a man, you growing as a person. And that is part of Yamato Damashi, is it not? Because the samurai wasn't like they didn't, they they didn't fear death, but they they were prepared to die for whatever they were doing. Am, am I correct with that? Am I kind of? Yeah. Well, Yamato Damashi is the you know is the is the is a spirit that will it's it's like a spirit that would never die, would never give up. So, the Igor fight was more of sort of like a confirmation to me and the people around me that I do have Yamato Damashi in my spirit. I have I have the spirit of Yamato Damashi. Can you speak about conquering your fear, dealing with your fear, and that particular fight? Yeah, um, well, see, the Igor fight was not something that was not something that helped me with Yamazamashi. It was more of a confirmation. Yeah, yeah. So, so I say there is a Yamato Damashi moment. So a Yamato Damashi moment could vary for every individual. So what could be a Yamato Damashi moment for you may not be for me. Yeah. Because right now, say, for example, if, I, if someone tells me that I have to walk 200 miles or maybe say a thousand miles 
with no food or water and you got to find it on the way somehow that doesn't scare me but for most people it would scare them to a point of they they really believe that it's not possible so for me to do something like that to set off on a on a moment like that and accomplish it would not be a Yamato Tamashi moment for me because I didn't fear it to a point where I thought it was impossible. So a Yamato Tamashi moment varies from each person. Like for a person, a regular person, that will be. So in the eager fight, there was never a time where I feared or thought I was going to die. I was prepared to die, but I never felt I was going to die or thought I was going to die. So I never had to overcome any type of fear. It was just a confirmation for me that I have a strong spirit. Yeah, so um, I, I call it a Yamadam moment where there's a moment where it could be something as simple as training where you're hitting a pad and your, your teacher's making you go in such a vigorous pace that you feel that you can't continue. Like you really feel in your heart that this is your last round, man. I can't, I mean, I only got 10 more punches, but he wants me to do five more minutes. And I really feel inside that I just want to, fall on the ground i just want to drop down or even even pretend that i can't go anymore and just tell them i i'm done i I, i'm broken when you really feel that moment you feel like doing that in your heart and you continue then you've actually built yourself and i could i call that a young moment there's a book called um the gift of fear and i don't know who it is that wrote it i can't remember who wrote it but um they speak about people dealing with fear and so they speak about in in that book uh pub, one of the things is public speaking and the the fear that people Whoa. the fear that people feel not not everyone feels it like but but you know the fear that people feel is being ostracized from the village you know what i mean being ostracized that's what they actually fear, not so much the actual speaking, but you know, saying something dumb or not doing it properly, and then everybody ostracizing them. So, for someone that's not good at public speaking, coming mm. out and getting up in front of a group of people and speaking is—that's the Yamato Yamato Damashi yeah, I, moment, I, I'd imagine. Yes, 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 yes. Because when I was reading that book, I thought of I thought of you, and I thought like. This, this is what, what you mean in as far as dealing with fear because for some people that wouldn't be a big deal and for others, it, it would be it, like one of the greatest fears is public speaking. Yeah, for me, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't look at a speaker that can speak really well and be inspired by him going doing like a huge speech in front of tens of thousands of people smoothly. I get more inspired as someone that has that fear. And even though the speech doesn't go as smooth, you can see them struggling, but they they push through it. That type of person will inspire me more than the person that can speak perfectly in front of a crowd. Yeah, 100%. One of the things is like, you know, when you, uh, unfortunately, and fortunately, unfortunately, I, I think it's great that, you know, people look up to athletes because athletes are, uh, it's a universal language, like music and whatnot. But I, I see, say, for example, um, a fighter. He's going to step into the cage, but he is a fighter. And stepping into the cage is, I'm not saying he's not nervous. I'm not saying he's not scared, but he is comfortable, reasonably comfortable. And then I think of like 
say a surgeon, a brain surgeon, and they said to him, you can't operate on this kid or you shouldn't operate on this kid because you can't. But he knows that if he doesn't operate on this kid, the kid's going to die. And he knows that if he operates, even if he saves his life, he's going to be jeopardizing his career and he does it anyways. That to me is like, that guy's over... You'll never hear about him, but that's overcoming a fear. That's that's something that we should stop and go, oh, fuck, you know? Whereas a guy that's a good runner or a good thing, well, he's doing what he's meant to be doing. I'm not saying that there aren't hardships, but it's a different... It, it, but we only look at, at those guys that are in the public eye. If you, I don't know if I made sense with what I said. Yeah, it makes sense. And overcoming your fears isn't not feeling fear. It's overcoming it means like being able to feel the fear, but controlling it enough that you can still continue to do the task at hand. Yeah. Can, in, um, one, of the, one of the fights that comes, it just keeps coming in my head. You beat Randy Couture when Randy Couture was on top. When Randy was, he just beat him Vito, if I'm not correct. Yeah, well, she was so undefeated, he vacated the UFC belt because of some type of a, a business problem with Dana. But he was the, actually considered the, the UFC champ. Yeah, he, and he just beat Vitor, and Vitor was called the Phenom, where no one could touch him. Dude, he looked like a genetic engineer's wet dream when, when, he beat, when, when Randy beat him. And then you beat Randy. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was crazy. Can you can you talk on that fight? Can you speak about that fight? Just run us yeah, through what I'm, you were thinking because people didn't think you were going to beat Randy. Like people wouldn't have thought that. But you did. Yeah, when, you you did was, it good. You know, like you 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 were you were like spot on. Like the calf kicks and that, and the leg kicks from the bottom from your bum. When I, when I was offered Randy, of course, you know, I was still a fighter up and coming and Randy was at the top. And, you know, I, I felt like, you know, that's a little bit over my head, but I got nothing to lose. So I went into that fight with the mentality that, yeah, 99 out of 100 times Randy will probably beat me. But whenever you go into a fight, you can't walk 99 roads or 100 roads. There's only one road you can walk. And if the walk, the road that you walk, if you have 100 roads to walk, the one that you choose, all 99 others don't matter. So if that one road is the road of two that leads me to victory, all those 99 that he can win has nothing to do with the fight. So for me, I went into the mentality that, hey, I have that 1% chance. Randy's human. If I get a proper arm bar in him, I'll break his arm. If I get a deep choke in him, I'll put him to sleep. I mean, he's not superhuman. As people, you know, sometimes image someone that, that that's that good. It's, they kind of see him as superhuman, but he's not. So I went in that mentality thinking that, you know what? Yeah, he is better than me. The percentage of him is winning, but it's not 100%. I got a chance, and I just got to train hard enough to make sure that there's a more of a possibility of that one percent happening for me what was the strategy behind that what's that what was the strategy that you had in your mind like how did you guys come up with a strategy with randy well my strategy was just to um 
train as hard as I could, become the best ensign that I can, and let let everything fall into place. I wasn't like thinking, okay, this is how I'm going to fight him. This is how I'm going to do it. All I knew is I had a style that was really aggressive, and and I was going to fight the same way. The only thing that I strategy-wise that I did work on a lot was I noticed he was really good at um, dirty boxing, which was he enabled his Greco-Roman. Yeah, you know. Upper body clinches, upper body t- neck ties. So I I went into a, a college school here in Japan, and and I just every every day wrestled with the Greco-Roman guys. So I got real used to it. A lot of Greco-Roman techniques and Greco-Roman tie-ups. So that helped me a lot in that. So as far as strategically, that's the only thing I did strategically. The the other thing I wanted to do was um, they they. In Japan, they didn't care how much tape you put on your ankles or your shins. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I made freaking casts on my leg. My leg had like two rolls of tape on each freaking leg. And they didn't they, they didn't even care whether... Because I remember your legs being taped up. Yeah, but it was bad. I, I mean, you know those uh, white electrical tapes, the ones for athletes? I put a whole a roll and a half <laughs> about all on the front of my shin like i only had like a one wrapping around to hold it in but the rest was all layered like a cast over my shin it was like a rock and my image was what i wanted to do with randy was he had the confidence he was the man but i wanted to make an impact in the beginning to show him that hey i don't give a fuck so my whole idea was i was going to walk in Whichever leg was forward, I think his right left leg was forward. So I was going to walk in like a southpaw, step in, and with my fucking heavily taped shin, I was Im- imaging just breaking his leg. So that was, my whole thing with the beginning was just an impact on letting him know that I'm not like everyone else and your 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 fame and your level of uh you know, the level that you're at doesn't intimidate me. And I wanted to let him know that, hey, you're dealing with a different type of guy. So that's how, if you watch the video again, I stepped yeah. in and I saw his left leg forward and I stepped in with my left leg and, and just laid on a heavy leg kick on him. I didn't care about what would happen after. I just wanted that impact. And of course, he took me down. We got went to the ground as soon as I stepped in with that kick, yeah. But then afterwards, he he must have felt your, your, your hips and your ground game because... He got up. He wasn't in your guard. Is am, am I... well? I had him. I almost locked in a triangle. Yeah, and he, and he won... stood up. To, yeah, he stood up to get me out of it, and that's when we ended up. You know, we I, and you know my whole my whole style of fighting was always be on the aggression. You know, kill or be killed, and I wasn't gonna wait to be killed, so I was out to go and kill him. So when when he stood up, and I'm laying on the ground. My whole thing was about how can I hurt him. So I looked, saw his legs. I tried to get his legs. I noticed that the legs were very mobile. So I decided to go for the upper body and kick the upper body. So it wasn't really something that I planned to do. It wasn't like, oh, when I get down, I can kick his body. I can do this. It was an instinctual thing. The desire to aggress, desire to take him out before he takes me out, create made me do and react and do the things that I did in that fight. But you cracked him from the bottom, though. Did you? Yeah, you, you, you never practiced that. Kicks. But you never practiced that. Yeah, we used to we used to throw kicks from the bottom, throw side side kicks to the knee, you know that type of stuff. Even in the Frank Shamrock fight, I I used I used like 
from the bottom when they're standing up, I would heel, you know, drop a heel right onto his foot, try to break his foot. So we noticed that laying on your back is not necessarily a submissive or defensive position. It can also be used as a aggressive position that people didn't expect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, going to the Frank Shamrock fight, you because I, I want to ask you something, and it's about the Frank Shamrock fight, but it's also about a lot of your fights. When you went out, you fought an eagle, and you fought him the way that you did. When you fought Frank Shamrock, and Egan was in your corner, is, am I correct? Am I thinking this correctly? The fight didn't either. Shamrock kept going a little bit, and Egan ran in. Is that correct? No, that was a real confusing thing because back in the day, the Shuto Association had a rule that there was a standing eight count. Ah. You know how the fighter standing has a standing eight count. Whenever they get knocked down, there's a standing eight count. So <clears throat> that was a rule. And when I got knocked down, I guess um, when the ref was trying to separate Frank to give me the standing eight count, and Frank continued, I think Egan just that that brotherly love just made him overreact, and he just felt like, I got to protect Ensign. And when he saw the ref having a hard time stopping Frank from properly separating and giving me a standing eight count, he ran into take the initiative to to stop Frank from hurting me. So that's actually what happened in that. But I don't look at it as a disqualification. They, they labeled it a disqualification because Egan ran into the ring. But I never liked the standing eight count. I always thought that if you're standing and you get a standing eight count, why don't you get a standing eight count if someone's mount punching you and you get rocked with a mount punch? They should stand you up and give you a standing eight for the mount. You know, so standing at, that standing eight in MMA is it's it's kind of it's it's redundant it's it's silly. Yeah, yeah, because there's a next continuation after the people go to the ground, like in kickboxing or boxing. There's no continuance on the ground, so I can understand the standing eight. So I was always against that. So when that happened, um, Frank knocked me down. I really believe that there's no such, there shouldn't be such a thing as a standing eight count. So, you know, if, if there wasn't a standing eight count, Frank would have probably been able to jump on me and finish the fight. So, you know, I, I'd rather they change the record to a KO instead of a disqualification. I believe it was a KO. Okay, okay. And segueing into the next part, which I was going to say to you, when you fought the way that you fought against, I'll bring up Igor again, but you fought him in like, with your skill set, there's probably... You know, you, you could have taken him down or you could have tried to take him down. Is it hard for Egan to watch you fight like that? Was it hard for Egan? Is it hard for you to watch Egan fight? But is it hard for Egan to watch you fight in a way that he might be thinking, fuck Ensign, try and take him down? And I don't well, know. I I'm not never, privy to any of this, so I'm just asking. I would have never I would have never been able to answer that because I was never in Egan's shoes. And Egan doesn't fight like me, so I never had that pressure. But recently, my my girl started fighting, and she's bullheaded like me, where she stands toe to toe. Her name is Sarah McCann. Okay. She goes by the fight name Sarah. Sarah, S E R A. Okay. But if you Google some of her fights, it's like she just stands toe to toe with people, and it was funny because one after one of her fights, that she just stood toe to toe, like not even moving her face, just getting hit and trading hits with this girl. Someone walked up to me after the fight and they told me, 
oh, so you know how Egan felt now for all your fights. And I was like, holy shit, that that sucks, man. <laughs> well, that that's that, that's funny you say that, man, because like I always thought, fuck, imagine being and he's Egan's your older brother too. So no matter, like I'm an older brother, and I always have that thing. Like I'm 40 now, my sister's 35, and I always feel like we're 15 and 10. Do you, do you get what I mean? I always feel the same way. I never feel like we'll, we'll be 80 and she'll be 75 and I'll still feel like I'm the older brother, if you know what I mean. And you got to take care of her. Yeah. Yeah. She'll, if When she hears this, she'll be like, oh, you don't fucking have to take care of me. I'm a fucking, I have a master's degree and blah, 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 blah. But you, you know, you just have that and you obviously can take care of yourself. But for Egan, I imagine just he would always feel that like he did in that in that fight with the shamrock fight and you would feel that for your for your partner is is it hard yeah, watching yeah. a bang out like that's toe to toe yeah i you know you know the thing with that is is i think understanding the person actually in there helps because if it was just you know a regular person and egan was a i was a regular brother and egan i think it would have been a lot harder for egan but I think for Egan, knowing what I was, you know, like, I'd rather go down on my shield than for him to have protected me from it. I think they would have done a lot more damage in my heart to not be able to have continued to see how I could have done. And I think he knows that about me. So as he was singing and that, that brotherly love made it hard for him to watch, he also knew that it would have been harder for me if he stopped it. Right, right. So I think that made it a little easier. And I always gave them the, you know, that, that line, you know, that there was going to be no towel in the corner. And they, they are not to stop fights. So they understood that too. So, I, I mean, yeah, the, 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 the instinctual care of a brother to, to be concerned for my safety was probably something hard for him to see. But... Same with me, with Sarah. When I see her fight, you know, I know it's hard for me to watch it, but it's easy for me to let it continue, knowing her personality and that she would be she would be gutted way more if I stopped the fight rather than you know if I you know if she get, ends up in the hospital with broken, fractured orbital and you know reconstructive surgery and takes her six months to recover. She would have probably suffered more if I stopped it early, threw in the towel, and never gave her a chance to experience it. So, you know, understanding that about the person, I think it, it's a lot easier to be able to watch and let it happen. Do you, do you have, is that like a, a Maori tattoo on your arm? Yes. Is she Maori? Yes, yeah, she's Maori. Well, then you don't have to worry, mate. They can fight. <laughs> yeah, no you telling me, my little fucking Maori warrior, bro. <laughs> yeah, you just let them go, man. You just let let them fight. They they fight. They can fight. So she yeah, this, this tattoo actually represents her iwi, iwi, and her river. You know, her hometown river, her iwi, and you know, her her her, her goddess of protection on the on my wrist right there. You know, so I felt I when I first. When it first came about about me getting a getting one on my arm, I kind of felt like okay, I'm I'm Asian. Is that disrespectful? But the people who wanted to put it on was very people who are very prestigious in the in the art of tomoko. Yeah. So if they were okaying it, and she has this uncle Derek that's really high up in the in that community, 
and he's there saying it's cool. I didn't think I was I had any um, rights over them to say I'm not I should I shouldn't represent it because if they think I can represent it, I it was an honor for me. And the, the so yeah, the Tamoko is is yours and yours alone, eh? Like nobody else can have the that the like no one can copy the the Tamoko. Yeah, well, there's they're not supposed to, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I have so many fans that copy my tattoos and. Like I have people that ask me for a picture of the of my tattoo on my leg because they want to put one exactly like it. You know, <laughs> it's kind of flattering in a way. But yeah, 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 yeah. No, um, in in uh, Pride, and uh, another one, another question, another not even a question, just another thing, another topic that I wanted to speak to you about was um, and may he rest in peace, uh, Kid Yamamoto. He, you, you were you were instrumental in his success coming up as a as a young fighter, were you not? Yeah, well, I not many people know it, but I'm the one who brought him into MMA, and I coached him for the first four years. He was suspended guided, eh, from wrestling. Was is it more correct? Was he suspended from wrestling? That's why he went to you. Yeah, he was suspended from wrestling, and um, he, first of all, he was in trouble with the yakuza. I got him out of that problem, and then because of the problem with the yakuza, he was uh, kicked out of his school and suspended from wrestling. Ah. Can can what what did he do that he was in trouble with the yakuza? Um, he uh, with he and with you know they have these air pistols in Japan. It's not as bad as American ones where it penetrates the skin. When I was fifteen, they took it off me at the airport. I couldn't bring it back. Yeah, the, so the Japan ones are more like they're softer and it, it just yeah, hurts. Yeah. It, it stings. So he was playing around with that with his friends in the town, shooting each other. And apparently a stray bullet went and hit a one of the Yakuza guys on the face. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I know. That, that's unlucky. But what happened was that Yakuza guy um, followed him home. And and he actually had to jump off his balcony to get away from them. Oh, was that full on? Yep. So what happened with that was in the, it, the word got in the school that he was having Yakuza problems. The school wanted nothing to do with him. They kicked him out, and when the wrestling association heard about the problem, and he got kicked out of school, they suspended him for two years from competing in wrestling. Two questions I have: So, how entrenched are the? So, for example, if you had a problem in with the underworld here in Australia, and you were at university, you're not going to get suspended from university. They're, they're two completely different worlds. But in Japan, if you have a problem with the yakuza, the yakuza that problem can get you suspended from university? Yes. If they go to the school and start causing trouble to the school, that's the way the school will get rid of the problem, get rid of get rid of what the Yakuza doesn't want. So, next question is, how much pull does the Yakuza have in Japanese society still to this day? The, the, um, it was more more prominent back in the day. It's, 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 they're losing control a lot now, but back in the day... Every single business had association to Yakuza. Schools, promotions, Coca-Cola, every single business to operate in Japan would have a connection to Yakuza. So a multinational company like Coca-Cola, if they wanted to start a, a, a branch in Japan, they would have to go through the Yakuza? Not necessarily through, but there would there will be a point in their, their, in their um 
procedure of uh, establishing a company, they would have to encounter Yakuza. They would have to work through or with Yakuza. When you say encounter, does like you have to pay a fee or like what would you have to do? Yeah, you either pay a fee or you hire some of their guys, or you you pay a free you you pay a fee to them to stand by the company in case other underworld figures try to get involved or cause trouble. So look like a like a mafia. Yeah. So, in other words, sometimes you're paying them a fee to protect them, protect yourself from them. <laughs> from them, yeah, yeah. And so, so, um, how did you squash the problem with the yakuza and um, kid? Because of my fighting, and because of the way I am, I've I've um, uniquely been able to get respect and fear from the yakuza they feared me and they respected me so i knew a lot of guys they knew if they didn't if i didn't know them they knew about me i was a real prominent name in the underworld and all i had to find out is where it happened what group it was from and if i didn't know someone in that group I knew someone high enough that he could call the group and say, hey, can you lay off, man? This is my friend's friend. And, you know, so that's what happened. I just made a few calls and they got in touch with the top guy there. And the top guy called the, the guy he had a problem with was a lower guy. How heavily entrenched were you in that world, in that underworld, in the Yakuza world? Um, I was never I was never at a Yakuza. I was never asked to become a Yakuza. You know, there's a lot of rumors that Ensign is Yakuza, but I'm not Yakuza. Um, if you, if I've done, if you want to say I've done business, yeah, maybe I've done a little business with them. Maybe I've helped them with some things with security. Maybe, you know, if I have friends with Yakuza, yeah, I have friends. Do I have people that I call brothers that are Yakuza? Yes, I do. So my whole involvement started because they are attracted to me because of my fighting. And they come to me because they respect me and they, they, they fear me, but they, they really look up to me as a fighter. And, you know, like, like any type of profession, if you're Yakuza, dentist, lawyer, doctor, whatever it is, there's a bad egg. So, you know, I've had, I have all types of guys come up to me. You know, I had guys that are totally not my style. These guys that like to flaunt their power. They like to walk and cause trouble to people. You know, I had a bunch of different types of Yakuza people approach me, and I've made a very good selection on who I choose to just be acquainted with and who I choose to become really close to and become like a family member with me. So, yeah. Were, were you, you, like, for you to get to a position where, from, from what you're saying, you were an, almost an arbitrator, mediator of sorts with the underworld, um, you would have had... Good run-ins, bad run-ins, neutral run-ins. As a foreigner, how do you reconcile that with being able to live there? And because there'd be only one ensign, so to speak, like it's quite a large target. Like, how how do you reconcile all of that? 
Well, I, I've gained a lot of respect and fear. I got a lot of respect from the people, from the Yakuza people, because of how I handled some problems, the way I've handled a lot of stuff, even legal problems, you know, saying that's not underworld related. So they respected my style. They respected the honor that I live by. Yeah. And so I think they, they really saw me as an honorable samurai where they believed that what I did and what I what I decided was a real proper thing. So <clears throat> a lot of the mediations happened when I knew both sides of the group. So you actually were a mediator? Yeah, I did a lot of mediation. I made a lot of money from it too. Because oh, when I said like an arbitrator mediator, I, I, I didn't know you actually mediated. Yes. Oh, fuck. So... So if there was a group that had a like, I, there was a group that had a problem with another group. They knew I I knew both sides. So with the group that having a problem, they would call me and say, "Hey, can you?" There's this Tokyo group was having a problem with the Osaka group, and they said, "You know, can you talk to them?" So I I you know I can't just hear one side. So I so I'd go to the one side, listen to them. Then I call my friends in Osaka and say, "Hey, I, you know, I hear you guys having problems. This, can I talk to you?" And they, they, you know, that that's that's where my the respect comes in that they allow me to get involved in it. Because most regular purpose, they'd be like, "What the fuck, you? Who the fuck are you? This is our problem. Fuck off." But because I was who I am, they respected me. It's okay. Let's come come down. So I went down, heard their side. I I heard a little discrepancies that are a little different in both sides. So I usually made the decision to get them all in one room. And out of the respect and a bit of a fear towards me, I made them agree that there was going to be no physical bloodshed during the meetings and it was just going to be talk. And they're, they're honorably enough to honor that every single time. So we got them into the room. I hear one side and I hear the other side in front of each other. And they can even, sometimes they would talk over, you know, like the guy saying his story and they would, they would, Go again? No, that's not true. You know, then so we'd work, we'd hash it out. It take hours sometimes, sometimes days. And I come to a conclusion. And if that one group had to, you know, they they borrowed two hundred thousand dollars. This is a certain instancing I actually am imaging right now that happened. Is the the group that owed? They borrowed two hundred thousand from this group, but they didn't feel they needed to pay it back because of this, this, and this, and this. And they felt like that the, the two, 200,000 would be like, sort of like a compensation for what you guys did to me. I had to deem with the, whether that was fair, that wasn't fair, maybe just half. But in that certain situation, the, the, what happened aside from the $2,000, $200,000 was totally irrelevant to the, the borrowing of money. So I, deemed that it was proper for the person that borrowed the money to pay them back. Right. And when I, when I mentioned that, you know, of course, they, they, they didn't think so, but because I thought so, they, they respected it. And they paid them back. Now, now, for you to get into that sort of position in, in that underworld, you, you would have obviously had to have your own conflicts leading up to that. Like you, you, it wouldn't have just been all like, Hey, Ensign's here. We respect him. We like him. Let's listen. Like throughout the years, you would have had to also climb, 
climb the ranks, so to speak, to get to a point where? Well, there was a, there was a, yeah, there was a couple instances where I felt I was done unjust by a yakuza. Have you been in danger like yourself? That? What's that? Have you been in danger yourself from the yakuza? With threats, but never actually in danger. So with this certain incident, it was a yakuza that um, when I this these two yakuzas that I was close to asked me to open up a gym. So I agreed, and I said, "Okay, they'll they'll finance everything," and they agreed to give me a two twenty thousand um, dollar gift to thank me for allowing them to open up a gym. And my only requirement to them was to hire my student to work at the gym so they can get a salary and they can, you know, do the fighter's dream, make a make a living fighting. Because most of the fighters back in the day had to work a job and fight at the same time. So that's where um, I got. Yamamoto, Kid Yamamoto, to work at the gym. Right. And that was the Killer B, Killer B gym. So that gym was established and run by Yakuza. So that Yakuza guy, um, I, you know, I put him in charge of the gym and I made sure that he overlooked Kid. Kid, uh, Kid was a type that, you know, fame and money was kind of like a poison to him. He started changing a little bit. He started getting a little too big for his britches. And I felt that. Before I go and discipline kid, I thought it was their duty. So I called that guy. His name was AG. I, I got it written in my book, this whole thing. But I called AG and I told AG that, hey, uh, Nori, Nor we, kid is actually, his name is Nori. And so I said, hey, Nori's doing this and that and that. Get on him, man. Straighten that shit out. And he said, I'll take care of it. Three months pass, nothing is done. Kid's still acting arrogant. He still hasn't been put in his place. So I I take responsibility. I think he's responsible for it. So I get angry at him and I call him and say, hey, hey we need a meeting. He knows the meeting is going to be a little physical. So he avoids it. Avoids my calls. Avoids everything. And I, he avoids me for like six months. And so at this, mo at this stage, I'm a little upset. And okay, avoid me. Hide out from me. Okay, fine. I can respect that. But in the midst of him avoiding me, um, Kid fights in this uh, event called Heroes, and he beats uh, Carl Uno. I remember that fight. Yeah, he won that event, and I'm watching that event, and I see this guy, A.G., jump into the ring hugging Kid. I'm like, okay, now he just disrespected me. He's hiding from me, avoiding me, but he's going on national TV and hugging my student in front of me. I, I just lost it, and I instructed my students to find out where the after party was going to be. And we went down to the after party. We went down to the after party. Um, I had my students go in and call the guy out. He came out into a park, and I beat him to a pulp. As I was beating him, I guess, kid them, everybody, the word got out to his group that I was beating the guy up. So this... The, the high, really high up guy, this guy called Hasegawa, he came out. And in the midst of beating him up, this guy, I mean, I, I like to describe it as like fucking monkeys coming out of the bush, man. These three Yakuza guys come out of the bush in the park that I was beating up Aegean. Like, like you know, talking, you know, screaming in that rolling their tongues at me. And I had some of my guys... 
I had some of my, you know, I had a bunch of, there was a bunch of other Yakuza's that came down that was a mutual friend to both of us. There was one guy, Tanaka, that kept bowing to me, asking me to forgive Eiji. And I would push him aside and then punch Eiji in the face again, you know. So I had a bunch of guys there. And these guys came for me and the guys that were there kind of stepped in between telling them to, you know, hey, hey, hey wait, 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 hold on. Because they, I, I just found out like a couple of years ago, I, I had dinner with Hasegawa and he, he was, we, were, we were recalling that story. And he, he told me that when they heard it was me, the three guys that went with him, they all had weapons. I didn't know that. So they came out with a, with a little, like a little aggressive demeanor. And my guy stopped them. And I looked at him. I said, fuck. I said, hey, Hasegawa, you got a problem with this? Let me just say one thing to you. And if you think it's, you're still justified, let's, we can get it on, you know? And so they let him go. He came up to me. I said, hey, I said, if someone fucked you over and disrespected you, and you only punished them 10% of what you really wanted to, because out of respect to the family, I said, wouldn't you think that's cool? And he looked at me. He goes, 10%? Fuck, the guy was all bloody. Yeah, he had, I think he had a broken, fractured orbital, but he's all bloody, but he was standing, yeah? So he goes, 10%? What the fuck is this? This isn't 10%. I looked at him, I said, Hasegawa, I said, I've been beating him up for 20 minutes. I said, you think if I gave even 50% of what I could do and for 20 minutes, you think he'd be standing? And he looked at me and his whole demeanor changed. And he looked at me and he said, fuck, he said, Man, then he kind of changed to a point where he was like, kind of like asking me, like, Ensign, the Yakuza is all about their face. If they're busted up, it, it shows they don't have enough power. If they collect money. They need to look strong. He said, without his face, he can't fucking work. So he told me, can you not do any more? And I said, you know what? I've done enough. And he said, and then he, I remember Hasegawa telling me that, Ensign, please stand down. And I promise you, if he doesn't do or make up to you what he's done, I'll kill him myself. And for me, that was enough to hear. I stepped back and me and Hasegawa actually became really good friends. And I'm still in touch with him today. Fucking. So wow. that was, yeah, you know, that kind of stuff happened to me two or three times already now. And I've had problems where the higher up comes out. But I always made it a point to always work in the proper you know do the proper routine don't don't do anything unfair don't, don't do anything wrong so i always made sure it was they did something wrong to me and it was my honor that was you know dented and i needed to take care of that when when um when i went to japan a few times well, one of the times i went to japan i went to a department store and it had a whole bunch of Kid Yamamoto stuff. Like he was like a fucking superstar. So Yeah, he was. When when he became that this this massive superstar in Japan, and like for any young person that would go to your head, like hundred percent, did that attract more <clears throat> more underworld figures to him? Or was he already involved with the underworld figures because he was at that gym? Yeah, he was already involved. So I think because he already involved there they didn't he didn't have as much of a uh, different groups attracting him. He already had an involvement, and he he a lot of his fans were gangster guys, so he had a lot of friends like that. 
So, yeah, he was already pretty much uh, looked up to. Not feared, but looked up to by a lot of the uh, underworld people. He was stupidly talented, though, eh? He was, like, ridiculously, ridiculously talented. I remember him fighting... Have, he he beat a guy that that I know um, from Australia, uh, Ian Schaefer, um, and Ian is a lot. Oh God, yeah, Jesus, he, he's that he's was a crazy knockout. He, and he Ian's a tough guy and big. Like he's a he's not a little guy. Like kid always, no matter who he fought, even when he fought Demetrius Johnson, which I believe by that time he wasn't kid anymore. Like the the way that I remember him in thing, but he even looked smaller than than Mighty Mouse. Like he looked, he always looked small. And Ian is yeah, really yeah, Ian is not small. So he and Ian knocked out Genki Sudo for those people that 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 don't know. Kid also fought. Correct me if I'm wrong. Around that time, with very little kickboxing experience, fought uh, Masato. Yeah, who was for people that don't know, he was like one of the best kickboxers on the planet. He fought. He even fought uh, uh, Buakau, didn't he, uh, Masato? Yeah. So yeah, you see, the thing with Kid is he was like, he was just unbelievably talented. The thing that Kid didn't have was he didn't have the confidence and the the heart, the strength in his heart. He needed someone behind him. He needed someone to stand by his side to give him that confidence. Can I say so something? If you notice. So, sorry, I was just going to say yeah. something because you know when we talk about your, your, your we, we were speaking about Yamato Damashi earlier and what's easy for people and hard for people and it's not always when you look from the outside in you think Kid Yamamoto exudes confidence that you know that that's you know when you but for him I, I don't know I don't know him at all and I could be you know I would never criticize or anything because I was a massive fan of his but I can also see and I, I could also see this that. The athletic ability for him came very easy. It wasn't. Yep. It wasn't something like for me to have achieved. Fuck, for me to do a backflip would mean that I took five years off doing everything, and that's all I concentrated on doing. He's probably the guy in the gym who gone, oh, like this, and just do the backflip. So yeah, he was like ridiculously talented. His his sisters were like Olympic wrestlers or high level wrestlers, weren't they? Something like that. Yeah, his sisters were world champions. Yeah. Yeah, so he's they're very, very, very gifted family, and he was yeah. super gifted. Um, sorry, I, I kind of sidetracked. I just wanted people to understand like how gifted this guy was back in the day. Yeah, so he was really gifted, but um, as far as uh, you know, Yamato Damashi, he he didn't encompass it because he only had a part of it. As far as the strength in his heart, he he didn't have that. You know, like you said, you, I noticed it was really interesting how you said it was. He fought when he fought Demetrius. It wasn't the same kid. The difference that happened was that he didn't have me anymore. He didn't have me behind him supporting him. So he, if you notice in the beginning of his career, he was this freaking monster that just ran through people and just wanted to kill them, you know. And towards the end of his career, he was more of this this sports fighter kind of, not really on. He didn't have that killer arrogant super confident mode anymore now when he was in the ufc he was like almost like a nice guy like i'm sure he was yeah i actually i'll tell you this one time 
He was. I don't think he was even. He was. He, was he a not nice guy though? In in general, because he was a super nice. He was always a nice guy. Because I'll tell you. I'll tell you a thing. I was at. Um, we were in Japan again with a with a friend of mine. I was in Japan, and I was at a fight night, and I bumped into someone, like I bumped into someone, and they they spilt their drink on me, and I when I saw the guy, I kind of saw him real quick. And he he looked like a, a like little guy, but he was look, look like little put together dude, rough guy, and he had tattoos and that. And you can't usually see the tats in Japan, but it was at a fight night. And I just saw him like on his arm, and I bumped into him. He spilled his drink on me, and then he was real sorry. Da da da. And then when he walked away, the guy that was with me was like, "That was fucking um, Kid Yamamoto," and like he. <laughs> but that was my only interaction with him, and I was like, "Fuck!" If I would have got a photo with him, you know what I mean? Like, um. So he he never struck me as a bad guy, but in his fights in Japan at the start he was a fucking killer, and then when I saw him in the UFC he was like the intensity was less than if you were at a at a jujitsu tournament. You know what I mean? He was like a nice guy shaking hands in between rounds, and he was different. He didn't have an instructable wall of confidence anymore. How did how did your relationship? impact his confidence like what was it that you guys did like what was the well the, you know when you have a mentor behind you that you can respect and you feel safe with behind you that mentor will you know i mean during training during the fight before the fight after the fight you know there's little words that i can put into his head that keeps him on focus you know and I was no longer there to do that. He so he became his own boss. Yeah, he didn't have anyone that he felt was more superior to him that he could fall back on. He only had himself. How did that? So people, how did that breakdown occur? How did that? If if you don't mind me asking. Yeah. Okay. That so that happened was. Um, did you notice that? Um, throughout his career, a lot of people in his. You know, when when he became a superstar. Not many people knew who I was. They didn't know I was the one who raised him. They didn't know the one that I brought him into MMA. He kind of kept my name quiet because of our fallout. Right, right. So what happened with our fallout was um, in his... Uh, I'm the one who got his K-1 contract. I negotiated with K-1. I'm also the one who negotiated his opponents and the rule changes. Until Up until this day, you will never see another K-1 fight that has a mixed martial arts rule, first round, or second, first round kickboxing rules, second round mixed martial arts. I'm the one who made that happen. Yeah, so there are fighters that he fought that if it was kickboxing rules, I didn't think he was going to be able to hang, so I wanted to make it fair, and I told them, hey, first round kickboxing, second round MMA. And that's how he got a lot of his wins over Yasuhiro, you know, over um, Naranton, over a lot of guys, you know, so I was guiding his career. I got him the contract, and the contract was a was a two year contract, four fights a year at fifty thousand dollars a fight. So he was making two hundred thousand dollars a year. He was making back $2, then as well. That's a lot of money back then for what yeah, MMA he was. Yeah, was making two grand per fight in Shuto. Now he's all of a sudden making fifty thousand. Uh, I remember the day I got him the contract. He cried saying, fuck, I wouldn't fight in K-1 for free just to fight in the K-1 ring. That's how much he appreciated it and he was honored to fight in the K-1 ring. Um, I guided his career for the first the first eight months, picking the fights, you know, 
even stopped the, a positive marijuana test from coming out public. You know, he got tested positive after the Murahama, Murahama fight, which would have nullified, nullified the winning and would have put his name into trash in Japan. I, I convinced a promoter to keep it quiet. You know, I guided his fights and he became, you know, he became pretty much like a superstar. I stood in the shadows. I helped him out. I was always in his corner. And what surprised me was after he beat Naranton once, he grabbed the mic without me. Not, I, I had no idea he was going to do this. He grabbed the mic and he told and he said, he turned over and looked over to Masato and he said to Masato, hey, I want to fight you in New Year's. And I was like, whoa, we didn't even talk. You got to talk to me about this. You can't just do that. So that's how the Masato fight happened. I was, I was close to Masato's manager, Haru. And Haru was like, fuck Ensign. Called me up and said, Ensign, what the fuck? Why didn't you tell me? Masato's doing his commentating job and gets flustered by a kid calling him out to fight. I'm like, bro, I didn't even know about it. And he goes, how the fuck can you not know? And I'm like, fuck, I don't know. So <clears throat> I went and talked to kid. I really was against it because I didn't think he was ready, one. And I, two, I, I thought that we could build it up a little more before actually having it. And it would be way bigger if we waited a little longer. Um, what happened with that was what inspired him to do that was his father. So the relationship with me and Nori, the first instance we got bad was because of his father. His father is known through Japan to love money and everything's about money. Money is the most important thing to him. Um, he'll make promises to to big fight associations for money to be paid to him. Like he, like when I was married to Nori's sister Miu, the dad negotiated with a pro wrestling association to. Have me tell them that Mew is going to do a pro wrestling match in her their ring if they pay him this fee. So they paid him this this six figure fee. And Mew and I have not don't even know anything about it. We we wake up in the morning with Ooh. Nori knocking on our door with a newspaper with the front page with Mew on the front page saying she's going to be fighting pro wrestling. I looked at Mew. She looked at me as a we don't know what the fuck's going on. Bottom line, we find out that the dad has collected a big fee to promise to, to get Mew into the ring without even telling Mew. So we had problems with the father doing stupid shit because of money. So apparently now, because Nori became a big name in K1, the father has this idea of him fighting Masato and renegotiating his contract. I'm in I'm in, in good with a lot, most of the MMA associations, the promoters, because I've never broke my word okay so our word with k1 was a two-year contract eight months has passed he become a superstar he all of a sudden now with the dad wants to renegotiate his contract so i'm like hey hey, okay we gotta, we gotta honor this contract for two years unfortunately you became a superstar we could probably get more money if we renegotiated but the fact is we have an agreement if you didn't become a star and you lost your first five fights i would still honor k1 with the same deal because it's an it's an agreement so because it worked into our favor where you became a superstar i don't want to be that guy that goes in and wants to renegotiate and renick on the deal so i told nori no i cannot support that so i met with the dad i told the dad to back off if you want to do any type of promotion for a talent agency getting him commercials fine go for it 
as far as he's fighting, I'm controlling his fighting because my name is behind this contract. We have to honor it. The dad said, okay, 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 we'll honor it. Next week, I get a call from K1 and said, Nori's dad just came into K1 office and said that if they don't renew his contract, Nori's not fighting for them anymore. I'm like, holy fuck. I talked to Nori, told Nori about it. They actually presented in my in book two. I'm actually going to um, publish the, the contract that um, Nori's father tried to present me with. He brought, they, they tried to get me, they went to another guy to bring a contract to me to get me off the management. Oh. They wanted me to sign a contract saying that I no longer have anything to do with Nori. Any infringements on the current contract, I would take total responsibility. So they wanted me to cut ties with Nori and also write in the contract saying that when there is an infringement on this contract, I'll take the blunt of the punishment. <laughs> wow. I have the contract. Is there no bullshit? It's all in Japanese, but I'm going to translate it and put it in my next book. So I refused to sign the contract. I grabbed the contract, took it away from this guy that was representing them, this guy Kazama Ken. And he didn't want me to take the contract, but physically he couldn't stop me. So I took the contract, told Nori. Nori claimed he knew nothing about it. But money and everything, Nori still, the dad still continued to contact K1. So I told Nori that, you know, if it's going to happen like this, I can't work with your dad. So if you're going to work with your dad, I'm going to step back. So that's what happened. Nori chose money and sort of chose to work with his dad. So I stepped back and they renegotiated. They actually renegotiated the contract. They told me that Nori is such a big star that they can they can break the contract. They're going to renegotiate. And, and I agreed with that. That's true. But that's not the way to do it. Yeah, just because something's know, true. There's there's a way to do things, of course. Yeah, I know that that's true. They need Nori. But that's not the way to do it. So... Well, they did it. They they went and they renegotiated the contract for double the amount. And, you know, great for them. I mean, financially, congratulations. But integrity-wise, you just fuck me. So, if you notice, yeah, if you raise a student from, from scratch, the biggest fight, Masato, isn't that one of those things that with, 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 with joy in your heart, you want to stand by him and see him go through it, yeah? Yeah, 100%. Notice, without advertising the problem, I didn't advertise the problem at all. I didn't want to tarnish Nori's name at all. I'm talking about it now because it's so long past, but I never talked about this problem. And if you notice, all of a sudden, at the Monsanto fight, I was no longer in his corner and his father was in his corner. Did you notice that? Yes. Yes. That was because of that incident. And I, I pulled away from Nori. So from then on, I was no longer in his corner. I was, I pulled away. And from then on, he never mentioned my name whenever they talked about MMA. You know, you know what's crazy as well? Because people, you know, you watch from the outside and it just goes, oh, okay, Ensign and Nori had problems. You know, fuck, you know, whatever. Because people, don't, you know, they don't really get it. But you're, that, was, <coughs> that was like your student and thing, and that's hard. But you're also married to his sister and so it's not just his dad, that's your father-in-law. And so then the amount, like, I, I don't know, he's, I don't, I'm not saying anything about the man or anything because I don't, I don't know him, but I, I just imagine the amount of stress and angst that it would cause even in your own house, you know what I mean? Because even if you don't talk about it or whatever, but it's still like, that's, that's her dad. 
Do you know what I mean? Well, you know what? You know what the little twist was? Was all this happened after I divorced Mew. Ah, okay, okay, okay. So that happened afterwards. But, you know, the relationship with me and Nori after I divorced Mew was the same. We we still trained together. Everything was cool yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that didn't happen with Nori. Yeah, that was no different. I mean, in fact, Nori showed me more loyalty than he showed to his sister. I see. Like back in the day when we went to clubs like that, and I was, uh, you know, I was with, I was married to his sister. We went to the clubs, and this, uh, you know, some girl approaches me. I start flirting with a girl, you know. Nori would see that, and he would, he would, he would protect. Like one incident happened where someone, one of Mew's friends, saw me, and the girl was like, I pulled the girl, and she sat on my lap. You know, I was in the back in the playful days. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and I'm not saying that I was uh, 100% loyal to me. I had my affairs. I was right, never right. caught, but you know, I at that time I was just I just put a girl she sat on me. I was, you know, we were talking, you know, it was a total flirt. It was total like they weren't just friends, you can tell. Yeah, no, no, that's well, fucking it got to me. It got to me and Mew came back and approached me when there was like a little argument. Nori lived next door to us, so he heard everything. He came over Nori backed me up 100%. He got me out of that by bullshitting to his sister, saying, no, 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 that's bullshit. It wasn't even like that. That's just, they're just friends. So he vouched for me, like, numerous times. So the loyalty I had with him was super strong. And, you know, after the divorce, it was like, okay, you divorced my sister, big deal. You and me are brothers. So it was, it, that had nothing to do with it. It was, it was just the father is a fucking, whether I was married to me or not, he he was a bad egg, man. That guy to this day just is about money, man. You know, you notice too, like you know, Mew's son, Urson. Everyone thinks he's my son, but he's not my son. Okay, okay. I loved him. I loved him as my son. He was the the son of the Mew's previous marriage, and you know, it's really weird because as I raised him for the four years, I I got so attached to him that I started calling him my son instead of explaining to people that no, it's a it's a um, son from a previous marriage but i see him as my son now instead of saying that i just agreed it was my son but so, it, so people yeah. today think it's my son you know do you have anything to do with him nothing at all man he's never i've never talked to him since we divorced he i in the, in the beginning after we divorced so the first year i would me and him had a really good tie because um when when Mew um when me and Mew separated for the year he lived with me I took him to school. I went to, you know, like when they had these little uh, exercises in the school and all the mothers went and did. I was the only father with Urson doing all the stuff with him. So that that would so be that, him, a, that would be hard though, eh? Not seeing that because essentially he was your son. You you treated him like your son, like yeah. So the first year I would secretly meet him, give him birthday presents, you know, give him hugs, have him kick the mat, you know, but. After a while, I noticed that it was he was having a hard time with it because at one event when Nori was fighting, I was already divorced by her, but Urson was there and I saw Urson and I and she stayed he stayed with her already after we got divorced, and I saw Urson and I called him over and I saw him kind of look over and to glance if Mew was looking, and he noticed that Mew wasn't looking, so he came running and he we called it a jumping hug, where he jumped into my arms, so we did that and I and I noticed that you know it was kind of affecting him. And to put my grudge with Mew aside, I believe that a child needs to love his mother and protect yeah. his mother. 100%. It's yeah. most, most important, most important. So I decided to back off. I decided to back off on uh, seeing him. And 
I decided to back off on sending him presents. I would always give him the presents because when we were married, we had an instance where Mew's father gave him like his up-to-date present, like the coolest present. We're like, holy shit, how did your dad know this was such a cool present? So Mew asked her dad one day in small talk, said, how'd you know? And he couldn't answer it. We finally found out that the present was sent to Urson by her by his father. Ah, okay. And Mew's father accepted it, rewrapped it, and made it like it was from him. <laughs> so I had that image in my head when I Fucking pulled away no. from Urson to stop seeing Urson. I always thought that, you know, I'm not going to send presents and that fucker does that kind of shit. And I, I know. So I decided for the sake of Urson and for the sake of the whole relationship with Mew and Urson, I stepped back. So ever since then, I've never seen Arsene, never talked to him. And, you know, Mew doesn't like me. It's, it's obvious. And I, 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 mean, I don't think she hates me, but I, I know she doesn't feel good about me. And I, I, I'm sure that things she told Arsene wasn't the most favorable things about my for my reputation. So the fact that Arsene doesn't want to contact me, have nothing to do with me, I, I, I accept that. If that's going to show his loyalty to his mother, that's more important right now. And so... How old is he, he now? He never contacted me. How old he is he? Never contacted me about fighting nothing. How, how old is he now? I think he's like 23 now. Okay, so he's not a little kid. Yeah. No, no, no. So I remember know, him as a little to... kid. You know what I mean? I remember because I remember when he was. He... Uh, yeah. Yeah, he was seven when I last saw him. Right, 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 right. No, I remember him being so, yeah. little and watching the fights. Yeah, so you know, it comes down to like, okay. Do I want to start a whole new relationship for the whole new dude and have to get involved with that family again? Or do I just close the door and say, hey, seven-year Urson or seven-year Urson, I love him. I loved him for who he was. He's gone. The new guy I, that's 23 years old, now, I the way he acts when he walks into the ring, that cockiness he has, I I, that's, I don't know. That's not the Urson I raised. i never seen that guy. Right, you know, right. So, <clears throat> I decided to just the person I knew is gone. The person I see now is a totally different person. I have no interest in, in making a connection. And the reason why I brought his name up was because I believe that he moved too fast for his career. He shouldn't be going to rise. He shouldn't be fighting Cron Gracie on his first fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He should have been brought up a little slower. He should have been trained a lot more before stepping into the ring. But Fight in rising will bring money and fame. And ha I'm, I, I'm on that to to segue into uh, money and fame in Japan, like the Risings, the all the all the organizations that have come since Pride and K1. Can you talk a little bit about what Pride was like at at its height, at its very very best, compared was, to today? Okay. Being in Pride was like being in a movie. The the production, the 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 show, the effects, the sound, the, even the way they take care of you, then the way they escorted you around, it was incredible. They took care of their fighters. Pride took care of their fighters. You know, so Pride was the association. I mean, I think Pride at its peak had a better show, treated the fighters a lot better than UFC does today. I think Pride was the pinnacle of US, the, the um, MMA world. What What do you think brought it down? What do you think it was that, that brought 
Oh, sorry. It was I, Yakuza, Yakuza affiliation. I, I, I want to go back. We'll, we'll get back to the thing. I, I had uh, Michael Chavello on the show. Um, he used to call K1. And he echoed everything you said. I was just going to say that. He echoed absolutely everything that, that you said about the production and being a movie. And he was talking about K1. But... um. Yeah, Pride was same. It was it was crazier. Sorry, you were talking about Yakuza involvement in Pride. You you said Yakuza. Uh, asked yeah, you. So, yeah. What, yeah. So you you gotta understand in Japanese society, you see Yakuza around. You know, like America, you don't see out mafia. Like oh, you don't see oh that guy's a mafia. That guy's oh there's a group of mafia there. You don't see that in Japan. It's prominent. You it's it's visual. It's accepted. People know that Yakuza are part of businesses, but it's not public. You don't make it a public information. You like people will will the a company will hire me to do TV shows knowing that I have a Yakuza affiliation. But once it's in the papers and it says Ensign has Yakuza affiliation, everyone's gonna back off from me. Ah, uh, but but yet everyone knows it, that you have Yakuza affiliations. But it's okay as long as yeah, nobody it is, says it. It is, it is in a way, it's like, ah, you don't want to deal with someone that's too deep into it. So it is a little bit frowned upon, but they accept it. It's accepted. But for, you know, like Pride, everyone knew they had Yakuza connections. Everyone knew that Yakuza was all the Pride. But when it became public for the their, one of their major sponsors, Fuji TV... To still support Pride when it's publicly made that they they have Yakuza connections, is almost like Fuji TV as a legitimate company saying they they're okay with underworld figures. They support illegal that they activity. that they are endorsing the Yakuza. Yeah, almost like they're endorsing them in a roundabout way. I want to I want to ask then, how did it go from being hush hush to being made public? Like what? How did that happen? Um. I think I, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it was a problem that they had. Uh, Fedor had with uh, some Yakuza guys that kind of thought they were his friends, and they kind of came out and tried to strong arm uh, Pride about having Fedor fight for them and having a payment being made to them. Oh, really? And this that, I did not know. I had no idea about this. And that became public in the papers. Like it was still like a rumors type of public, but that was enough to just. Fuji TV just dropped Pride, and that's what Pride started spiraling downhill because I was one of their biggest sponsors. Fuck! <laughs> well, I didn't know that. the The owner, not the owner, the president of Pride, he he committed suicide. Eh? Like, or or they they said he committed suicide. Allegedly. With, yeah, he hung himself from like a was it like a something that you probably couldn't really hang yourself off. Well. Well, I say allegedly because I don't have any proof that he was murdered. If I knew, I would tell you, but I don't have proof. But there's too many circumstances in the whole situation that led to a chance that he was murdered. Because one, I talked to him a week before and he was excited about Pride. He was excited about what, what the future of Pride. So he was not someone that was planning to kill himself one week ago. The other thing is, whenever you find someone a body in the in the hotel and it's apparent suicide, there's a big investigation before it's announced. It was announced that night that 
he committed suicide. Oh, like just like that, bang! It was suicide. Yeah. No investigation. So that was no, really nothing. weird. That was really weird too. So you know, and and also knowing the behind the scenes on Pride is that Morista he was not even a main figure in Pride. He was a face just to put on the podium. Sakaki Bada was the one from the very beginning to the very end until today that's running the whole company. I well, so what? What so he was disposable. So is that is that company that was Pride that you say he's running until today? Is which organization today? Rising. So that's the same people. Yeah. Okay. It's the same group. So Pride is Rising is like Pride too, but because when they I think when Pride sold their rights to the UFC. They sold the rights to the name and the vid all the video documents that they have. That's why the UFC has the right to all that. And they also signed a contra a clause on the contract that said that he was not going to run any martial arts events for seven years. But they still did. So if you No, no. So if you count the day the years when Pride when the Pride was sold to the day that Rising started was exactly seven years. Okay, do you see Rising or One One FC or something like that being able to grab a foothold into the Asian market the way that Pride did? Um, Rising is starting to. So the atmosphere, the the energy that the fans are having now in Rising is pretty close to what Pride was. But what Pri what Rising is missing that Pride doesn't have is they don't have superstars. Ah, okay. They they have Horiguchi, they have you know they have a couple guys, but they're they're not like Horiguchi will go and you know Lou he 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 lost he didn't really do much in the UFC. Right, 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 right. Yeah, um, yeah. But you know, back in the day, Pride had Vanderlei, had Bobo Chanchin, had freaking all the top guys. You know what I mean? Like, oh, it was insane so back back then. Yeah. Um, I've, so now Rising is like a sec a feeder to Bellator. On on this on that whole topic, kid, you say he p tested positive for pot, but you stopped it from coming out. But what I find ironic is, correct me if I'm wrong, just from what I've heard, and I'll, in the Pride contract, you could take steroids, but you couldn't take pot. Is that is that correct? Yeah. What is the the Japanese obsession with the marijuana over drugs over other drugs? Because steroids are like what? What is it with pot? Well, pot, they 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 just generalize everything: ice, cocaine, heroin, pot. They're all in the same group. You were arrested for marijuana as well, eh? Yeah. And and I was uh, I was facing four to seven years. Four to seven years for how much pot? Twenty grams. Twenty grams. So I, so I literally had a. Uh, 10 joints rolled and a and a 10 gram or 5 gram little nugget of bud. And th and for that you could face 4 to 7? That was a rumor. I only got I got I got a 2 year suspended sentence with um 4 years probation. And so you, you like how how did they catch you? With that cuz that's fucking I had nothing. It in my car. I, I had it in my car, man. I I went to a parking area. We're going to go eat lunch and got stoned 
<laughs> went to eat lunch, left my uh, left the the the, the roach in the in the ashtray that was open. Went to eat sushi, came back to the car, was sitting before driving off, was sitting in my car, looking at some messages on MySpace, and bro, before I knew it, I had two cops knocking on the door asking me to if I could they could uh, search my car, and they just searched it. No, well, they, I, I looked at them and I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want you to search my car because I knew I had weed in the car. It was hidden in my sunroof, but still I was like, oh, I don't know if I want you to search my car. And the, one of the cops saw the joint in the ashtray. Oh, fuck. And right there was already probable cause to kind of force themselves on it. So they said, I want what is that? And I was like, I was fucking high as a kite, man. So <laughs> my judgment and my reactions weren't that good. So I kind of looked at them and I kind of, I said, where? And I kind of fumbled through the coins and I grabbed the joint, put it in my hand. I said, what? There's nothing but coins in there. And he goes, it's in your hand now. So I stuck my hand in my pocket, dropped the joint, look, look, take my hand off the body. I said, there's nothing <laughs> in my hand. Like a magician. He's, you know, <laughs> it's fucking, yeah, like some some freaking high magician that thinking he's fooling everyone. <laughs> Not fooling anyone but himself, you know? <laughs> So yeah, then so they so when they got that they uh they went and they searched the car, they found the rest of the weed and um tested it right in front of me and um turned out positive and that's all she wrote, man. Hit the tabloids, hit the all the T V stations. They they didn't do like a, like bigger searches of your other property or anything like that to did did they do that? Okay. The funny thing about that is at the time I was growing and selling. Oh, you were growing and selling. <laughs> so I had a room that was full of weed, growing weed with lights and everything, the whole fucking You had a hydroponic setup in your in your house? Yeah. And I had uh I had over two hundred grams of weed ready to be sold. Oh. And I got lucky. Oh, they didn't find it. I got lucky because they don't. They don't allow you to make any phone calls. Once you're arrested, they just go to your gyms, your house, and search. I got lucky because I, I had an idea, and I just thought that. You know that I'm arrested. So, sorry, sorry. It, it just even froze if they, up. My friends knew I was arrested. It, the thing just froze up. I okay. just missed what I, you said. I had an idea that um, I needed to have, let the people around me know that I'm arrested. You know, even if they knew, there was still a small percent that they would figure something out and say, oh, we better hide everything from Vincent's house. But I had to take that chance. So what I did was I told the police that my girlfriend was coming in in the airport, which which was true. She was actually coming in, but she was going to catch a train back. But I told them that I did. See, I was supposed to pick her up. Right, right. And, that, and, she's, and if I don't show up, she's going to freak out. So can I just call a friend to pick her up? So they're like, you can't call, but we can call. So I'm like, oh, even fucking better. The police call my friend. <laughs> so I gave him the number and I gave him the number of a guy that was like the most, you know, you have a group of guys that are totally fucking game and you got guys that are just always on the, on the worry wart side. They're like always worrying about, oh, what about this? What about this? I have, we had a guy in our group named Ikeda, and he was the one that was always worried about something going wrong. So <clears throat> the cops called him, 
they said, okay, this is Ikebukuro police station. Ensign's not going to be out for a while. His girlfriend's coming in from Haneda Airport this time. We need you to pick him up. So that guy, Ikeda, boom, hit in his head. I talked to him later. In his head, he said, I either Ensign got arrested for either fighting or weed. And if it's for weed, he said, fuck, the police are going to go to his house. Him and three other students went to my house, cleaned up the whole room. All the bud that I had, they went and buried it in my yard. Because they were afraid of throwing it out because they were afraid that I was going to um, get mad. So all the <laughs> equipment they had, you know what's incredible is all the equipment I had, all the lights and all that shit, they rented a, a car loaded into the car and parked it in a pachinko parlor. Wow. Yeah. And that guy deserves a fucking I, medal in the I keys to the jail. city. I was in jail not knowing how Ikeda took the call, not knowing if he did anything. And I knew they were going to invade my gym and my house. And I, I just I was just dressing out that whole night. The next morning, my lawyer came in and he looked at me and said, the police went to your gym and your house. And I was like, oh, fuck. He goes, Daijobu, he told me. Daijobu, uh, everything's good. I'm like, Daijobu. He said, yeah. He said, nothing. I said, I know my gym said nothing. He was like, oh, fuck. My house, what? I, and I had to actually start my jail term not knowing what happened with that until I got out. I had to ask them. How much jail did you do before you realized, like, okay, I'm going to get out? Because you, what, so at this stage, sorry, just to, so at one stage, you're sitting in there going, if they find that shit, I could do Seven years, ten years. So you're you're because that like people like you know you're you're doesn't matter who you are, but your ass would be puckered at that point. Like there would be no way in the world, no matter how hard you are, that you'd want to spend the next ten years in a Japanese prison. So at some point, you were like, "I'm going to fucking do ten years," and then the guy comes in and says, "Dajobo." No. What happened was at first I was I I stayed in for twenty eight days, but up until the last week, I didn't know how long I was going to be in there. Fuck. Yeah, so um, I knew it was a holding period. That twenty eight days that I was in jail was just a holding period until they decided whether I was going to have a trial or I was going to be let free. Then I would have to post bail and then serve a real trial to see if I served the four to seven years. Wow. But when I was in, when I was in, the, when I first got put in, sometimes when you're, even if you're um, going to, you're, you're granted a trial to see if you're guilty or not, they hold you in there until the trial. And then when the verdict comes out, then you continue serving. So I didn't know if I was not going to see the, the light of day for another seven years. So that was really stressful. And then, you know, in book two, you know, I kept a diary in prison, a real um, raw diary. I mean, not trying to be tough guy, not trying to be macho, but a real diary on how insecure I was, how I felt, what I went through in prison. And it's I've, I've published all those diaries in my in book two. What's book two going to be called? What's book two going to be called? I don't know. First book was called Live as a Man, Dies as yeah. a Common Man. I don't know if I'm going to use that and use part two. Or I'm going to rename the book. I, I want to make sure it's understood that there's a link to the books. It's a continuation. 
is is Japanese prison very different to like Western prisons? Like if you go to jail in Australia or I don't know. What I see in the movies, yes. But I've never really been in a Western prison, so I wouldn't know exactly to, to tell you the truth. But what I see in the movies like that, if it's portraying the prisons correctly, there's a lot more freedom in the U.S. jails. Oh, really? What, what's Japan, a typical day in a Japanese prison? Your whole day is controlled. Um, when I, okay, so they tell you when, you when you eat, when you sleep. You're, um, you know, you're, um, the cell that I was in, it was a, it was a one empty room about, I would say it was about 10 feet by six feet. Okay. No chairs, no desks, no nothing. Just an empty room with five guys in it. Whoa. When it was time to sleep at six o'clock, they would allow us to get, go to a room and get our futons. So five guys would lay it out where it was barely enough room and in the morning they wake up at seven o'clock in the morning and we'd have to clean up our futons and sit in the room all day that's it that's it there was a we could buy notepads and we could get um pens but it was only like from i think it was from 10 in the morning to four in the evening so they would come and give you'd ask for a pen they come and collect the pen Fuck. And the only other break we had was lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner that we did slide through a, a little hole. And we couldn't we couldn't ask for seconds. We would just be slid and eat what we they give us. So the of two hundred pound guy would have to eat the same as a hundred fifty pound guy. Does that is there a prevalence for the same type of violence that there are in like Western prisons in, in the Japanese prison system? Or is that level of control subdued somewhat? I was held in a jail, so I, the, the the big prisons, I'm not sure how it's done there. But in the jails, we're all in one together. We, we're, there were Yakuza guys in our, our cell. There was one Yakuza guy that was real violent and kept beating up his roommate, so he ended up being in his own cell. He was next door from us. But, yeah, there there's like, um, you're mixed in with everything. You know I mean, I, like my room, my room had a Yakuza guy that um, was arrested for trashing his uh, his girlfriend's apartment like fucking sledgehammering the toilet like that <laughs> and another kid was in there for uh fondling a girl in the train another older guy this guy shimizu was in there for a um, counterfeit japanese yen and another yakuza guy was in there saying well he said that he was framed so he came from sapporo and he was framed. so there's a I mean, you got mix. counterfeit sexual harassment to all different types of people in there. Um, I want to touch on something else. I appreciate all the time, man. I'll, I'll wrap it up soon. I just want to touch on something so that people... Fukushima, you you were one of the like people that, um, in, at least in the fight world, that you were like personally going out and, and helping. That was during the massive earthquake and the tidal wave that, that hit that north part of, of Japan. Can you can you speak on that? And um, because one of the things that I that I've, I've read, this happened what 2011. Am I am I correct? And they were saying that they were already finding animals being born near the nuclear reactor, near the nuclear site there, with deformities. 
but that in about seven to ten years you'd start to see those deformities in human beings i'd I'd read that back then is, is can you speak to that if it's true or not or if they've found that or i've i i was not been aware i haven't that's news to me i've never heard of that but i wouldn't doubt it because the, the radiation it hasn't gotten better it's not in the news anymore but the radiation is the same it was when it first exploded so you you went out there you went out there with a, a what do you call it the Geiger counter, Geiger Geiger counter is that the, yeah. So you went out there and you could tell how much radiation there was and how much you were taking in. Beg your pardon. <clears throat> yes. And so I read up on it too. I think it's a 60,000 60, microsieverts in a year, and um, I always went up to like forty thousand, and I discontinue my trips for the, that that year if i went up to 40,000 how quickly would you get to 40,000 how how quickly would you be able to get no, to 40,000 40,000 took about 5 trips into the zone and how long were you in the zone for about a half an hour every time so that's insane that that's like really crazy level so if someone's there for for a week in the, in that environment you'd be fucked it's going to change it's going to change their body chemistry which would be very high susceptibility to cancer. And what made you go out there and be there? Because there was like, is it a hundred thousand displaced homes? Was that was that correct? Oh, I don't know. Hundreds of thousands of displaced people, tens of thousands of people missing and dead. But when I when when I I was here in my home in Saitama, and that that you know that earthquake shook. I mean, I want to show you something. It's uh, we're like we're like uh, fuck. We're hundreds of miles away from the earthquake, the epicenter. But look at my walls. Those cracks, those cracks are from the are from the earthquake. Yep. And you're how far would you say you about two hundred miles? Saitama would be. At least two hundred miles away. And a crack like that. Yeah, well, I was hearing this. This fucking, the house felt like it was on like a, like a roller skate, man. It was shaking. It was, it was like, I mean, it was surreal, man. And turn on the TV, and uh, they told about the earthquake, and then uh, it showed um, a whole red line along the country that showed a tsunami warning. Later on in the day, like maybe like a couple hours later, they were they were. There are scenes on TV of the tsunami hitting, and then I got calls from my from my friends in the military because the military gets the information right away. Yeah? So they told me that there, because a, a reactor melted down, there's going to be a because of the wind directions, there's going to be a real high amount of radiation going into Tokyo. So a lot of people, a lot of high officials in Japan, the prime minister, they all left Tokyo, went to Kyoto, went to Osaka, down south. So I was advised to do that. So I thought, okay, I, maybe I should do that. So I had a gym in Kyoto, and I was going to go there actually the week before, week after. So I figured, ah, I should make the trip earlier. Just jumped in my Hummer and drove down south. As I was driving down south, the next week I was supposed to have a, um, a job doing security at a gangster event. And What's a gangster event? Get... Sorry, you, you said gangster event. Like I, I don't know what a gangster event is. Oh, gangster event is like an amateur fight that 
it's fucking crazy. You got the Yakuza's fighting each other. You got they have a thing called Tobiri, where in the middle of the event, you know, people get crazy in the fight. You know, they, oh, anybody want to try? <laughs> they'll pull people from the crowd. They're like five guys will raise their hand, and they'll kind of eyeball them and say, "Okay, you're about his size. You and him, and you and him fight each other." And then after in an hour, and they'll get in in the and they'll fight. So so so. Like you guys, the gangster events. You were gonna do security at the gangster events. The the gangsters would fight each other. And you, and and like what two on one, one on one, five on one, like two on one. There was three on three. There was one on one. Yeah, it was it was crazy, like a street fight. And the reason why they needed security was because some in the beginning, the gangster didn't understand that the fight was just in the ring. So there were there are a lot of incidents where the gangsters higher up guy gets beaten up and the younger guys attack the fighter in the corner. Can, can the guys actually fight? Like, are they good fighters, or are they just like guys are just getting out? Not at, at the time. Now there's a lot of good gangster fighters, but not back at the time. They fought like women. Fucking. You know what the thing is with you, Ensign? Every time I ask you something. You got just got another fucking crazy story on the side. <laughs> you know what I mean? And right. I, I don't mean to take up all your time. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? But your your stories are insane. It's like one after the other after the other. And every, like if I ask you about an earthquake, you're right? And then you're like, so, you know, I was on the way to save people from the earthquake and the tidal wave and I was taking supplies. But I was really on the way to a gangster fight where I had to do security for them. <laughs> It's so, okay. So to get back to the story is, uh, I was supposed to be at a gangster event the next week. So I called the promoter and said, "Hey, is that still on? Because I'm in Kyoto now." And the guy told me, "Oh no, it's canceled." I said, "Oh okay." I said, "Because of earthquake?" He goes, "No, because we're all driving up north to assist the people." And it and that's and a yakuza. Yeah, and it hit me, man. And I was saying to myself. Holy fuck. Here I am driving the opposite way, running from the problem. When these guys are driving into it to assist the people who need help. And it, man, that whole night, it bothered me. And it didn't help that I had my parents calling me, telling me to fly back to Hawaii, you know, because of the radiation and stuff. And, you know, of course, in the in the world media, this is huge. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like telling my mom, no, I'm not going to leave. And she goes, okay, well. We'll pay your way. Fly to Okinawa. Fly down south. And she, they're trying to encourage me to get as further, furthest away from the problem as possible. Of course, mom and dad are always going to say that. Yeah. And then I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, I'll, you know, I, I, I was saying, okay, I'm in Kyoto. I'm safe. I'm trying to convince my mom, I'm safe here. It's good. This is far enough. I'm fine. And as I'm talking to my mom then and, and trying to confirm to them that I'm safe, I, I have these friends that are driving up north into the fire, and I'm like. I'm sitting there. It was bothering me the whole night thinking, fuck, what kind of man am I? I'm running from it when I could actually be of help up there. So, ironically, it was good because all the shelves in Tokyo was all empty. People were preparing. Their, all the water, um, instant food was gone. But in Osaka, it was still good. So, I loaded my Hummer without telling my mom. I loaded my Hummer up with all the goods I could get. And I got on the road and I started heading up north, man. 
<clears throat> so that's how I. It was two weeks after the tsunami hit, and I and I and I went up north. It was hard to get up north because half the um, half the time we had to get off the highway because the roads are the highways are crap. Yeah, the roads would be like a like all over the place. Eh? Yeah. So any road, any span of the highway that wasn't inspected by the safety inspector, there weren't people going allow people to go off, so we'd have to get off. So. So a trip that would have took me three hours took me like eight hours to get up north. Fuck. And then when you got there, it would have been like... When I got up there, I, the first city I hit was a, was inland. And I went to check on some of my friends that lived there. And it was just pretty much earthquake damage. They were fine. A little shop. They had collapsed buildings. I drove around the area to see if people needed help. And as I was there, I got a call from another friend that told me that she has a friend in uh, up in Miyako, which is way up north, right in the coast, and said that they they got hit by the tsunami, and uh, I can't get in touch with him. Can you check if he's okay? So I figured oh, I'm already up north, and I'm figuring I'm up north. I may as well do it for her. So I said, okay, give me the address. She gave me the address. I put it in my fucking nav, and it was another eight hours up north. Oh. So I'm like, ah, oh, but I already told her. I said, you know what? I'm, so I jumped in my car, drove up north, and it was it was a it was like really amazing because, you know, a tsunami only damages where the tsunami hit. You know, yes. you have a typhoon come true. The, the the hard hit areas of the typhoon or earthquake or fire is damaged, but around it, there's you know, there's cracked buildings or you know, around it, you can kind of see where the the heart of the the quake was or the heart of the fire or the heart of the the typhoon or the, so the tornado. Man, the tsunami, the tsunami is totally different, man. I'm driving towards the coast and everything's perfect. I'm like, yards are green, no, nothing's damaged. And I'm thinking, I'm <clears throat> getting pretty close to the coast. I'm thinking, am I in the wrong place? And damn, lo and behold, I take one freaking turn around the corner and everything's gone. It's like from 100% nothing's wrong to fucking everything's gone. And when I went there, it was it, the the army was in there still trying to clear roads for cars to drive through. There were bodies up on ceilings. There were bodies stuck in, you know, like the Chevron gas, the the Chevron big high sign they have that. Yes. There was a body stuck on top of that. Oh. The 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 stench was a smell that I really cannot describe. I want to say like it's, it was a real fishy smell with. A tinge of some weird tang to it. So when I got in there, it was all about cleanup, man. I found my friends, my girl, my my friends, uh, friend, and fuck, helped them clean up their house and and went to his uh, the evacuation center where his family was and dropped off supplies to them. And I noticed they needed way more supplies, so I spent the next week driving three hours into a different town just to pick up supplies to bring out to that town. Far out, and that's when I got the bug on helping these people because up until that day, you know, you're 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 a child is accustomed to believe that the true the true happiness in life is the happiness of receiving. That's why on the on the day that's considered your day, your birthday, what happens then? It's supposed to be your greatest day, so you get presents, right? But I learned that day that the true happiness in life isn't the happiness of give, receiving, but it's the happiness of giving. 
So yeah. I, I went out and brought stuff for the people and I just, it felt good being able to help, but it didn't really hit me until one day I, there was a reporter that wanted to follow me up and he followed me up, did a little documentary on it. It's called the Yamato Damashi Diaries. If you YouTube and you, you go on Yamato Damashi Diaries, there's all parts. Okay. Parts once you see you should watch it. It's fucking raw because he came in with me on like my third trip up there and filmed and documented it. But he um, came and he asked one of the ladies, wow, um, so is Ensign being any help? And this lady looks at him and starts crying. And right now, till now, it kind of chokes me up thinking about it. And she looks at him and says, you see this shirt that I have on? This is from Ensign. You see the shoes I have on my feet? This is from Ensign. And then... I got her some um, dog food because she had a little dog. And she said, even this food for my dog is from Ensign. And she grabbed it, held it to her chest, and went back to her cardboard box that they were building to live in and sat down and started crying. And, it, it, and fuck, man, it just hit me to a point where I was like, wow. I mean, get, receiving any type of present, even getting like a... I had a Yakuza guy buy me my Hummer. And the happiness I felt receiving that gift was nothing compared, wouldn't even compare to the, the, the warmth I felt in my heart seeing that lady say those things. And fuck, from then on, man, I was hooked. Then I, you know, people say that, wow, instant man, he uses all his money, gets nothing from it, and helps all these people. Man, you got that. They got that all wrong, man. I'm not getting nothing from. I'm getting so much. I'm getting stuff money can't buy. The warmth in my heart that I'm, I'm given by by learning the the happiness of giving and, and seeing these people cry and smile with happiness. Money can't buy that. So I'm spending my money to do things that I'm actually getting a lot back. So I'm hooked on it. I'm still doing it till today. We're we're still taking care of an orphanage right now and oh it's going to be a hard one because you know the orphanage um i used to break it down into four different trips because there's 88 kids yeah so are they orphans from fukushima a big part of them are but some of them the orphanage has been around for 100 years now okay so a lot of them a lot of the kids the majority of the kids are from the tsunami so I go and buy shoes for them every year. Because, you know, every year as you, when you're a kid, you grow outdoor your shoes. Yes. So I decided to get them shoes every year. So <clears throat> we get the um, school to write down, like, the first trip's going to be from January to April. So they give me a list of all the kids' sizes, their names, and what color shoes they like. And I go to the shoe store and I purchase all the shoes and then bring it up, drive it up to them. Buy them birthday cakes that they enough. I buy like four huge cakes that they can split up and cut for all the kids to eat. Sing happy birthday, give them their shoes, and leave. And I, I do it like four times a, a year. But this year, because of the coronavirus, I haven't been up there yet. And what I'm afraid now is I'm probably going to have to make one trip up there in December. And I'm going to have to buy all 88 at one time and bring it all up to them at one time. So that's going to be a chore. And, you know, with my financial situation, my my I have a bracelet um, shop in Hawaii. That Destiny Forever, eh? Yeah, it's been closed since the, the um, corona started. And I've been paying the monthly rent on the, on the, on the spot 
without having to tr- being able to drive in any type of income. So, um, where can I have pe- a foundation? Oh, okay, that's what I was going to ask you. Where can people I look at to be able to don- donate money? But there's only a thousand bucks in there, and well, how can we remedy that, Ensign? How can how can people? Um, I, I will put in some money today, but how how can it's ensigninoyfoundation.com. Ensign, we'll we'll put it up when by the time we ensigninoyfoundation.com. Yep. And if you want to donate it, money, can you? Is it is it very straightforward? You can just look at it and put in some money. Yeah, you can make a donate. There's ways to donate on the to the site, and it goes into the bank. So, so what I'm doing now is I'm I've got a. I've, right now the online sales for my company destinyforever.com is actually generating enough to cover the rent for my spot. Yeah. But I would every time I made trips to Hawaii, like I supposed to have one in April, July, and September. But I've had to cancel all three of them so far. And I'm trying to schedule one for October or November to open up the shop and make sales because that's where I get a bulk of my, my money to be able to help the, the, um, the kids. Yeah. So it's a little scratch right now. To, I'm worried about how much it's going to actually cost to buy the 88 shoes because I don't buy shitty shoes. I buy good shoes. I, I ask the shoe companies, the shoe stores, what's in style? So sometimes the shoes go up to 90 bucks, sometimes it's 30 bucks shoes. Depending on the shoe that, you know, the color and the shoe they want. I don't go to the discount section and buy the shitty cheap shoes for the kids. I got them, get them shoes that are in. So, so I'm sorry. just a little afraid because I know it's going to so let, let me cost just, more than a thousand. Let, let, me, let me get back to you in one sec. What's what's the name of that, that shoe company that was on that other podcast? That guy? Huh? Tom's. Which one was it? I know. I was just speaking to, to, to my wife. It does... There's a is it Tom's Loretta? So there's a company that that Tom's shoes like the the shoes the brand is Tom's, and they it's meant to be something like you buy one shoe and then the one pair of shoes and then the and another pair of shoes gets donated to um, people in need. That that company that that's oh, wow. that's pretty much I'm sure that that's what they do. Um, I'm I'm gonna if you know I'll, I'll look it up as well and I'll send you the the details or or I can even I can chase that up, but I'm I'm gonna definitely put some some money to the foundation. But maybe there'd be companies like that that would be willing to to jump in because if you're buying if they say that that's what they're doing, you're buying one and one's going across. Well, maybe you can only have to buy half. I'm just fucking. Maybe that might help. Yeah, that would help. That'd be yeah, something so... to to look into. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, so I'll have a look at it. I'll send you some so, stuff. Um, I'll, I will have a look at it yeah, myself. So, yeah, so I, I, it's just a little, a little obstacle right now. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the shoes. The kids are waiting for it. I'm gonna do it no matter what. Whether I gotta, you know, I, I, I have this lucky knack of somehow running into enough money to do what i have to do so i'm at the right now if i had to do it today it'd be hard but it'll happen i mean i still got a couple more months to save up and you know it'll happen do you still do seminars (laughs) and that kind of stuff what's um that's all stopped because of the virus no no i traveled since february no no but aside from that my shop's closed Uh, aside from covid here with the 
you know, like destinyforever.com, you could order online, but for for like three months, the the Japan Post wasn't sending out to America. Ah. So right there was like, oh, not only can I open my shop, now that I can't take on mail orders, but now we've actually found a way to actually, you know, you, did you know that the Black Cat, the 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 domestic um, mail service here in Japan, did, did you know that the Kuroneko sends uh, international? No. I didn't know that either because when, when the post office shut down, we're like, I'm fucked. I got nowhere to send orders. I got orders coming in. I can't send them out. And somebody mentioned, what about the Takubin? I was like, they're only domestic. They were, no. So I went in and checked. It's uh, Before it was, was uh, like 20 bucks a bracelet to send out, but now it's like $28 a bracelet. It's a little more, but it gets there in a couple of weeks. That's, so that's... we found a way to send out. So we, we got some life now. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Um, you... you... Oh, fuck! I forgot what I was going to say because I was just listening to. to you, you're also making the bracelets, so can you talk just a little bit quickly about the the, the bracelets that yeah, you make? Yeah, these bracelets. Um, yeah, these are all, all gemstones. They're all like like this one I have on. The one on the bottom is a uh, green, a uh, blue amber. The one on top has uh, has um, jade crystals, um, amethyst, all different types of crystals. So in Japan. The people in Japan wear these for protection. They believe that if a bracelet breaks, it's taken something that bad that was supposed to come into you. They take it, it, it takes it in place of you. So that's the reason why I started wearing them. And then I didn't realize until a year later that every stone has its own property. So these are power stones. And if you Google crystals, they all have their own properties like promoting positive energy. Some of them negates negative energy. Some is good for stress. And did you say you jade? Did you sorry, did you say yeah, jade? Yeah, jade too. No, because yeah, this green Okay, cuz I did um I, I did a podcast the other day with um uh Ong, Ong Lan Sun. He's the dual champion in 1FC. He's a uh, middleweight oh, and yeah, like yeah. yeah, he was on the podcast like last last week I think. And his dad cool. is a is a jade miner. His dad mines. No way. Yeah. Where does he mine in Thailand? No, no, Myanmar, because that's one of the big places for for jade. Oh, is... Myanmar has the best jade. His dad. Myanmar and Guatemala has the best grade A jade in the world. Well, Aung Lan Sun's oh, dad shit. is a jade miner. You should. Whoa, in Myanmar! <laughs> Holy fuck! You you should you should talk to him about that. I'm sure I'm sure he'd be receptive. Yeah, well, to... I didn't even. I can I, I can send that. him a message wow. that that you, well, I was talking to you about it. Like I don't know if his dad. I don't know him. Like I only know him through the podcast. But I mean, you make jade bracelets, and you are who you are. And his dad's a jade miner, so you know we might be able to make something wow. happen there. Yeah. I would even want to go go and visit the dad and see how they fucking mine it. That's like I'm I mean, sure. I love the stones, man. Jesus, I'm sure they would be receptive to it. Um. Um, um, if you if you messaged him, I'm sure he'd fucking he'd know who you are for sure. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I, I might try to hit him up on uh, Instagram or something. Yeah, he'd he'd be hundred percent receptive. Sorry, you were saying something else, and then I, I went to I went to Guatemala for, to do a seminar, and I went to Guatemala and I asked him, "Do they have any type of precious stones?" He said, "Oh, we're known for our jade." I'm like, "Really, Guatemala? I thought it was from China the jade." 
So he takes me to the market, and then the, before I go, I look it up on the internet. Like Guatemalan Jade, it, it, it said, Myanmar and Guatemala have the best grade AJ in the world. I didn't even know that, man. I, I only knew shit. I only knew about that because of um, Angla. I knew, I, uh, I knew I'm, I'm not going to, without being a dick, I did know about Guatemalan Jade because I know that it had something to do with the either the Aztec or the Mayans. That I knew that. But I, I wasn't fucking, and I'm not a jade expert. And I knew about Myanmar because of Anglan, as of last week. Had we have had this conversation uh, three weeks ago, I would have known nothing about jade, except that I knew that the Aztecs or the Mayans they had a, they had a very big um, they saw it as something with their spirit or something. The the jade, I, I just remember. Yeah, they believe they believe the the Mayan warriors' spirits are in the jade. Right. Okay. I knew it was something like that, but I didn't know exactly. And they, and apparently the Mayans are very, very fierce, fierce warriors. Well, they, yeah, they ran the whole place for quite a uh, quite a while. Yeah, yeah. I am. Um, I'm so, gonna. Anyway, getting back to that. So that that's how I I actually got involved with it because, um, I used to wear the bracelets all the time, and on my 39th from my 39th birthday. I'm 53 now, but since my 39th birthday is when I, I, I started making a rule that no one could bring presents to my birthday and I would give presents to people. So whenever I had a party, as I, I would order these bracelets, you know. Right, right. And, and depending on the type of stone you order, it could go from like 150 bucks to thousands of dollars per bracelet. So I'd, I'd make a pretty decent one for, um, I was ordering a, like maybe like I'd say about 30 or 40 of them. I'd spend like eight to $10,000 on presents for people that come to my party and we give out bracelets to them. And one year that I was doing that, the guy who was um, making them for me was in trouble with the police and he was on the run. So he said, I can't make them for you, but I'll meet you. Of course he was. Of course, it's an it. ensign Inui story. Of course, the guy was on the run from the police. You can't just make. You can't just be fucking making bracelets. You had to be on the run well, from the police. Said, I'll teach you. I'll teach you how to make it. And I was like, "Fuck that! I'm not making this because it looks real complicated, but it's really a simple make." So now so you make bracelets. Me, I'll teach you how to make it. Yeah. So he t- told me he teach me how to make it. He met me up. Took me fucking three hours to make the first one. I'm like, there's no fucking way I'm going to be able to make 30 of them. So that little, not it's not need to be said that no one got braces that year. But ever since then, I just enjoyed the process. It was the kind of therapy for me to play around and do ties. And I started making them, I made them good enough where I felt comfortable that I could wear my own braces. And then I got, I felt like after making hundreds of them, I felt comfortable enough to give them all as presents to friends. And then when I then I went to another level of comfortable enough to put them up on Facebook. And when I put it up on Facebook, fucking all these people wanted to order it. They they it's believed that these power stones, uh, the spirit of the maker goes into the stones too. Ah, okay. So a lot of people, a lot of fans wanted stones, and I was like, ah, oh, it's not for sale. It's just a hobby. And then it came to a point where people kept pushing it. So I said, you know what? Oh. I'll make a price and see what happens. And I made a price and it got so crazy that I had to create my own homepage. That's so cool, man. And yeah, and then as people started ordering different colors, I would go into the gem stores and, you know, I, I, I would tell the guy, you know, most people go in there and say, 
I need Crystal, I need Aventurine, I need Onyx, and they name the stones. But I was going in there with colors saying, telling the guy, I need the red stone, I need blue stones. And he looks at me, he goes, do you know that these are real gems? I'm like, oh, who cares? I need a blue one. He goes, no, no, but they also have their own properties. I'm like, properties? What do you mean? He goes, well, this blue one balances the aura. And I'm like, that's bullshit. <laughs> you know, they, how can a stone do that? And he goes, well, this one calms stress. And I'm like, well, that's a cool gimmick. So I said, okay. So I started learning about the properties. I never did start selling them as a, as properties as a properties. It was always just protection bracelets. And as I was selling them, people started coming in for properties. I was I felt really uncomfortable at first telling them that, okay, you have cancer. This is a good sell for cancer. Oh, you have stress. Okay, and I had felt really uncomfortable. But as the years went by, we're getting people coming back to my my. I had a booth in uh, Hawaii. I had a pop up booth that I did before I got my spot. And I would make someone, I would make a, this guy had bad dreams for eight years. So I looked up, looked up the internet, uh, crystals for bad dreams. And there was a, there was a certain crystal. I got the crystal mixed in a bracelet with a combination of something, made it for him. He came back to me three days later saying, oh my God, the night after your bracelet or your bracelet, I never got, I don't have bad dreams anymore. I'm like, and I'm like in disbelief, like, no fucking way. Are you fucking serious? He said, yes. I said, holy shit. That is so cool. Right on. And I was like, I look at my partner like, holy fuck. He said it worked. Like, what the fuck? You know, I, I was still a disbeliever. And through then, man, especially for like arthritis and stress, man, people, whether it's placebo or not, it's working. People are getting comfort from it. You know, when the braces get worn out and then they need restringing. There are customers that really hate being without their bracelet, but they say that a lot of bad things happen when they don't have their bracelet. They feel real uneasy when they don't have their bracelet. And we've had like so many. There was one kid that came in with scratches and scabs all over his skin, and the mom wanted me to make something for allergy. I'm like, okay, this is a good test for placebo, man, because this kid has no idea. So we make one. Rose quartz is a stone that's really good for um, allergies. So I make a Mix in a rose quartz and a bracelet that with for other stones with allergies, and give it to her. She buys it. She leaves. Man, you're not gonna. One month later, she comes back into the shop, literally in tears, and she tells me, Ensign, after my daughter's been using that bracelet, she no longer scratches her allergy. I'm like, what? I looked over. The kid was with her, and the scabs are all healed. And like, and I looked at my girlfriend, and I said, Holy shit! I mean, placebo, is it, it, it actually worked. And I've already had three dozens about people coming in. And now majority of my customers in Hawaii that come to my shop, it's all about properties, man. It's all about properties. It's, it's amazing how it's transitioned. to. I was like a disbeliever. And slowly as I, I mean, I, I saw people come in and at first I was like pretty much, what the fuck, man? And then, and even till now, I'm, I'm still, when people come in and say, oh, Ence, the bracelet you made, man, my mom feels so much better because maybe, you know, the mom had a friend pass away and she was really sad, the grief. So I read the Jasper is so good for grief. So I make her a stone and he's a man and said, I don't know what it is, but my mother puts on your bracelet and she feels so much better. And at this point now, I've heard so many testimonies like that. I was like, I'm, I'm more, not like a disbelief, but I'm more like right on. I'm so glad it's helping, you know. 
but but so, I think regardless of whether like people have a thing that I have no idea about this stuff, but people have a thing whether it's like if something's placebo, it means it doesn't work. It 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 who gives a fuck if it works and it's placebo? Who cares? It works. Do you know what I mean? Because they've done heaps of those studies exactly. where people have run faster, they've taken this or whatever, and then I think, well, then fucking what they took or what they didn't take worked because they ran faster. You know what I mean? It doesn't really. So I think that's that 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 is serving a very important thing because. It is getting people, at the end of the day, it's getting people to where they want to get to. It doesn't matter, like, you, fuck, if you don't believe, it doesn't matter, it, as long as it, it works. I have to ask you something, man. My wife asked me to ask you about your dogs. What kind of dogs are they? And Yeah, because we, we, we have a dog. We have a cunny corset. And um, we, we saw your dogs, and then and my wife said, ask him about his dogs. So I'm asking you about your dogs. They're, they're American bullies, man. They're the joy of my life. Look at their, their look at the hard day they have. <laughs> look at that hard life they have, man. Oh, you got three of them. Three of them, yeah. This is the brown one's Bernie. He's the father of Tamashi. Tamashi is the white one. We named him Tamashi because we thought he didn't have brown on him when we first saw him. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. And this this one was we bought when she was already two years old. She was this is the mother. And she's also the alpha, but she's a she's a cowgirl. That's so funny, man. And you've always had dogs. Is that why you called your gym purebred? Have you? No, always- uh, I named my gym. Actually, that's that's a real interesting story too. I named my gym purebred because I actually purebred was actually my racquetball company that I first established in Japan. Ah, okay. But were you and always I made into a, dogs? I made a line of racket. Yeah. But I made a line of racket. I, li- I made a new line of racket and I named it. I named the whole top line purebred because you need different lines of rackets. So you need a high line, a mediocre line, a grassroots line, a low line, a cheat line. And every racket needs a name. And it's always hard to name the rackets. So I felt that if I named it purebred, I could name each racket as the you know, like the first one I made was called the boar. Okay. I, I could name one the eagle. I could name one the panther. Isn't that cool names for a racket? So yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. The reason why I became a gym was because when I had the established racquetball company here, the Shuto gym that I was training at got into financial problems, and they were going to close down the gym. Okay. They offered everybody in the room that, you know, Nakai Yuki was there. Um, all the top shoot fighters are there, and they said, you know, we're going to close the gym. Somebody wants to take over. And I was the only one with a legitimate company that I could put the gym under. So I wow. raised my hand. I said, hey, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to run it, man. And that, so I just transferred. It was like a gym was under my racquetball company. It was called Purebred. And that became the birth of Purebred Gyms. <laughs> I, I used to work in a, in a gym, like a, a weightlifting gym, back in the day. And it was called Squashlands in Liverpool. Shout out to Squashlands Liverpool. And it had squash and racquetball. And I hit my friend, shout out Sergio Pavlovic, with a racquetball. We were playing racquetball. It was shit. We were completely shit. But I hit it like hard as I could and it cracked him in the ear. Like like it didn't hit the wall and hit him. It just hit him flush in the ear. You know? Um, sorry, sorry, Sergio. Sorry. Sorry. Um, and so, yeah, that so racquetball is crazy, eh? Like the, the ball would goes like 150, 200 miles an hour can go, eh? Yeah. 
it goes fast. And we actually, me and my brother were known as uh, some of the hardest hitters on the tour, on the pro tour. And we've, I've actually hit a guy in the leg that is broken skin. Because <laughs> my mate, when I hit him, obviously I can't hit anywhere near as hard as you guys could. But he's like, he's never done wrestling or combat or anything. And as soon as I hit him, his ear went almost like a collie. Like yeah. straight away, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. I felt so sorry you for him. You see the bruises you get on the leg from that. Yeah, racquetball is a... It hurts, man. It would hurt. I have three it questions. Does. It hurts a lot. I have three questions, man. And I know you've been like ridiculously generous with your time. Do you still follow the UFC? No worries, man. Do you, do you oh, still? Oh hell yeah! Every year, I look, I look forward to UFC every week, man. That's the highlight of my week, man. Ah, awesome! I was going to ask you, who do you have for the Israel versus Costa fight, and and why? I, I think it could go both ways because if Israel can somehow get past the first round, because I know it's going to be a crazy rush, he's going to hurt him bad by picking him apart. But if Costa can, you know, manhandle him and catch him with something in the early, I think Costa will not come out. If I had to put money on it, I put my money on Israel. You know, one of the things that I see a little bit difficult for them there is like, I feel that in the hundred plus fights that Israel has had in you know, kickboxing and MMA together, he's fought guys like Costa that are going to come forward and whatnot. But I don't think Costa has had the experience enough to have fought enough guys like Israel. But like you said before, yeah, if he if he catches him, like it's fuck doesn't matter what it, what it could be. See, see, the thing the thing that works in Costa's favor is one, it's going to be a smaller octagon. Yes. The apex is a smaller octagon. Two, two. Randy Couture, Randy Couture said it when he fought me. As he said, he told some one of his friends that I heard him say in an interview that you know, I know Ensign's aggressive, and I prepared for someone being aggressive, but until you face that in the ring, there's no preparing for it. And I believe Israel fought a lot of aggressive fighters, but. Did you see how fucking Costa was attacking Romero? Romero? It was insane. Romero's the one that usually chases people around. Yeah. Costa was making Romero back off and throwing blow for blow. I think Costa's aggression is a different type of aggression that Israel's not going to know how he's going to react until it happens. But I just believe that Israel is so com- composed and so established in his kickboxing that he'll be able to figure something out in that first round. And what? then once Costa gets a little tired, man, it's going to be nightmare for Costa. I, I agree. The, the only thing I, I think is, in the, although the Apex is a smaller octagon, Israel has fought in small rings as well against big hitters in, in rings and, I mean, in but rings and glory. But the hitters he was high, fighting against were hitters with kickboxing. It's not... You know, like if you clinch in kickboxing, they break you. So it wasn't right. something that a, uh, it wasn't a, a, a objective to clinch. But Costa will run at him, and if and if he um, clinches, it's not a break; it's continues. You know, and you saw what he did to Homero when he pushed Homero up on the fence, and he right. still slugged it out with him. You know, I don't know, man. It, 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 I really, I'm really looking forward to that fight because as much as I can say this, you can say that. There's, I mean, it's. It's really a 50-50, man, but 
If I were to I had to make a guess and I had to put money on it, I'd put it on Israel. Khabib versus Gaethje? Um, Khabib's gonna um, Gaethje's gonna provide a pro- produce a lot of problems for him, but I think Khabib's takedowns in ground. I mean, his his pers- he's not just regular takedowns. That guy just drives like the the resilience that that Khabib has, man. I think Khabib's gonna. I, I I pick Khabib over Gaethje. And in what fashion do you think? Uh, from uh, submission. Oh, you think you'll submit him early or late? Yeah. Um, I think in the later rounds. I think it'll be kind of like Connor, where you know how Khabib had a hard time keeping Connor down and take him down. Yeah. But Khabib's no slouch on his feet, so it's the hardest part to take someone down is all you're doing is shooting for takedowns. Once Khabib established a striking game with Connor, yeah, he was he took him down a lot easier, but. That's the danger. Establishing a striking game with freaking someone like Gatesy is kind of scary. But I think it's the, the odds for um, Gatesy catching Khabib is less than the odds for Khabib actually being able to take Gates down and gun, keeping him down. I know Gatesy's a wrestler and got good wrestling, so it's going to be a chore for him, but. Come on, Khabib, it's not Khabib's uh, first day in the park. You know, he's like, he's uh, he's face wrestlers and he's gonna he's gonna train with wrestlers. I'm just afraid of how much his father's death has affected him. Yeah, that I, I can't imagine that. Hey, eh? I cannot. Like, you're never ready for your dad to to go. So fuck, I, I don't know. Especially their relationship. It was, I mean, the dad was everything, man. His coach, mentor, friend. I mean, whew. yes. No, I, 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 I feel for him. Like in going into that fight like that. Um, I got two two part of the last question. Um, when you watch these guys, do you how do you feel, young ensign fighting today, and does older or more mature ensign today? Do you still have a, a thing where you'd like to get back in there? Like when you watch, say, for example, Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr. now, do you have a thing where you go, fuck, I'd like to get in there and do it again? Or, And how do you think okay. you would have gone for if you first, came up now? The first part of the question is, how would old, old Ensign, uh, Inu, um, Ensign do in the ring today? Young Ensign. They stopped fights so fast, young Ensign. They, they stopped fights so fast. My my thing wasn't this great technician or this power puncher that knocked people out. My thing was the resilience and the and the you know the fact that you pretty much had to kill me to beat me. And nowadays the fights, I always say that the fights that um, the the fights today are stopped where the the heart of the fighter is going to start in back in the day. Do you do you feel you, know, like you see a fighter fighting? You, you see a fighter fighting, and you're like. You see, he gets into a real adverse situation. You think, okay, this is now we're gonna see how tough this guy really is. Oh, fight stop. Yeah, yeah. So if that happened to young Ensign man, I would be nothing. I'd be just someone who just goes for it and gets stopped. Because they wouldn't, I wouldn't. Igor's fight wouldn't have been continued as long as it was. You know, Heat's fight when Heat had me in the key lock and was popping my arm, they wouldn't have been able to do that. They would have stopped the fight today. You Did know, you so. say something to him in that fight? 
did you say something to Heath Herring when he when he was <laughs> yeah, popping yeah. yarn? Is that true? Can you tell? Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, he he had me in a deep key lock, and when he when he cranked it the first time, there were three pops in my elbow. And he looked up at the ref, and he told the ref, "His his arm is cracking. His arm is cracking." Hoping the ref stops the fight. The ref looked at me, and I shook my head. And then, so Keith, Keith actually looked at me, and he said, "I'm going to break your arm." So I looked back at Keith, and he said, "I said, if you can, if you can break my arm, break it." Did he That's break the, it? That was the dialogue. Did he? Did he break it? No. Well. I don't think he could have. I think he was looking for an easy way out. I don't think he was too concerned about my arm. No, I don't think he was. He so doesn't I, look like he's Mr. Compassionate. When I told him that, break it, you can, if you can break it, break it. And I, with my other hand, I started hitting him in the back of the head. And he tried for a little bit. And it, it popped. A, it, it, like, it made a little pop like two more times. But I think he realized that he couldn't really break it in half, so he let it go. Fuck me, dead. It's it did pop though. So yeah. So you know, young Ensign wouldn't really do anything today. The fights are too sporty and they stop too soon. And I, I don't know if I fought someone like Connor, I don't think they would even make it to the fight because I would have probably attacked him in the hotel room. Because so, of the talk, young Ensign. Yeah, because I I don't bullshit my fights. I don't talk shit. I don't say anything that i don't mean obviously if i don't say anything that i don't mean i'm not going to think that this guy's trying to sell a fight it's going to be personal to me and you know what my honor and you know the way he dished uh khabib's religion and family that's that's way more that serves a lot more higher priority to me than the fight has and anyone insulted you like family, that no i've never had that problem back in our day we never nobody ever did that and if anything, the only insult that I had was Joe Estes. Before we fought, he demanded more money. And the uh, Suto Association, he, I lost to him once. And the Suto Association couldn't afford to bring him back. So I contacted the Suto Association and told them that if you guys can't afford him, take whatever you guys need from my fight money, just get him here. And that's how I got him here. And I, and I felt that was almost like smack talking, saying that I beat Ensign before, I need more money. And I felt like, well, you fucker, okay? And then what really took me over the edge was when I got the mount on him and hit him with a couple clean shots. And with all that talk, he starts tapping out like a little chicken. And I was like, I was pissed off that he tapped out so soon. But no, we, I never really had any smack talk. When when Guy Mezga beat Egan, he... Oh, that's another one. <laughs> and, but guy, guy seemed like, I don't know the other guy. I know that the other guy that you fought was when you won your world title, when you had the rematch. But Guy Mezga, I don't know him, but I've seen him. And he seems like a, a good guy. Is he a good guy? Was there a misunderstanding or was it... Super he... good guy. Yeah. So, so what happened there? Super nice guy. Okay. Um, so guy, um, guy made a contract with Pride. I, apparently, you know that I retired. Was, I think that was like two... Two months before, after my uh, Heath hearing fight. Right. And I retired. Yeah. So Pride had this smart idea to get me out because in one of the one of the interviews I had in Japan, they asked me what would bring you out to fight again. I said, well, it was just a real, um, it was a like an example. I said, like, for example, if someone killed my brother and said, fuck you, Ensign, I want to fuck you up, that might bring me out. <laughs> and I guess Pride had this weird idea 
that they told Guy that if you beat Egan, you got to call out Incident in a bad way. And then Guy was like, ah, why would I do that? And he goes, I know he's retired. And then they and Pride apparently convinced Guy that I, I was in on it too. So it was like a pro wrestling thing. Which obviously so, you weren't. <laughs> so yeah, so when I, when that happened was they went and um, he beat Egan. And when I went into the ring to check Egan, Guy had the courtesy enough to come up to me and say, and remember, this isn't personal now. And I, I was like, what are you fuck you talking about? You beating Egan in the ring isn't personal. It's part of the game. He goes, no, no, no. He said, I, so I said, what are you talking about? I, I got to call you out. I said, what? And if you watch the video, I was shaking his hand. And I remember I, this clearly, I, I dude. Yeah, and as I was shaking his hand, and I was, he was saying, I got to call you out. I told him, you know I'm retired. He goes, yeah, but it's in my contract. I got to call you out. So when I was shaking his hand, I was kind of like bullying him into the corner. And I was telling him, if you don't want to do it, don't fucking do it. That's what I kept repeating it like three times. And Guy kind of expressed to me that, fuck, man, it was in his contract. And I it just... It just I just came to a realization that Pride plays those fucking games. They po play power trips on the fighters. And he, and he, I realized, fuck, guy's in a hard place. So I said, you know, fuck, that's fucked up. So I told guy, well, this is fucked up. Do what you got to do then. But guy was cool because he toned it down. It was supposed to be really mean because he thought I was in on it. So he was going to really insult me, telling me, like, I'm a chicken and, you know, come fight me. I beat up your brother. But. He just said something like, I just beat Egan, but I, the one that I really wanted to fight was his younger brother, Ensign. So he made it real mellow, real calm, and real respectful. After the fight, Guy came into my room, and then he told me, Ensign, man, I didn't want I said, no, no, you're cool, man. He said, I didn't want to do it, but it was in my contract, Ensign. And they told me you're in on it. I said, oh, fuck, I wasn't. He goes, you weren't? You didn't know? I said, no. He goes, oh, I'm glad I talked to you. I said, yeah, hey, bro. I said, no worries, man. It's not about you, so... I got in, I went into a little rampage in the locker room after that, and I um, demanded that they bring the president of the company into the Susimi. And was that Sakaki Barra back then? Was Morishita the guy who got killed? Ah, okay, okay, okay. But uh, Morishita was busy, and I kept. I mean, I you know the little guys in the microphone that was hired and getting paid minimum salary to do that. Yeah, I was scaring the shit out of them. To get the president, so they, they they brought in like three different guys because the guy was scared. He, another guy came back. I told him, "Where the fuck is he? Where is the president?" They ran out. They came back until the matchmaker Kawasaki came in. As soon as he came in, I grabbed him and threw him to the ground. Told him, "Where the fuck is Morista?" Egan stopped me. He got up and said, "Fuck, Ince, I'm sorry. I have nothing to do with this. I'll find out." He ran out. Sakakibata comes in, and he tells me that. He doesn't know who did it. Um, we'll find out. We'll get to the bottom of this. And I'll let you know. And I said, yeah, we need to fucking find out who's playing this fucking game. I hear from Guy that it was Sakakibata who told him to do that. Oh, that was going to be my guess. That's why I asked before. I wasn't even there. <laughs> so I'm here all pissed off. The two days later, I get a meet, I get a call from Sakakibata. He wants to talk to me about it and meet. And... I'm, I'm over there all pissed off and, and thinking this is going to be a financial, um, you know, settlement. And I'm, I'm, I'm then telling my students, fuck this. if this fucker doesn't give me more than $2,000 to settle this, I'm going to throw it back in his face and slap him. 
So we go there and he comes out and he sits down and he tells me, Ensign, you know, it was one of the people in the office. So he lied to me and I knew, but I want you to procedure. And I said, he said it was one of these people in the office that did it. I was like, oh, really? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, and we, you know, we'd like to show our apologies for the inconvenience. And he sends me this envelope that I grab and I'm thinking, whoa, this is way thicker than two grand. <laughs> right, right. So there was $10,000 in the envelope. Oh, okay. Well, and you were happy with that? Yeah. So, well, um, I didn't feel like confronting him with the lie was any good because I did. I, I found out from Guy. Yeah. And I didn't want to get Guy in trouble. Right, know? right. Like, a guy told me, you fucker, because then they won't have Guy back again. So I, I did, couldn't say that I knew it. But I knew that was my red flag that I couldn't really trust Sakakibata. Right. And I and I and I and I I walked away with ten grand more money, which is pretty cool. Wow. <laughs> That's that is cool. Who, That's what happened with that incident. Fucking hell. It it's just like a a, a a rabbit hole every time I ask you a question. Who do you have Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr.? And do they make you want to fight again when you watch that? Does that is there a thing when you watch oh, okay. Okay, first I'll answer that first question is I'm I, I'm I'm a Tyson fan in and out. If I got to meet any fighter in the world or anybody in the world, if I had a chance to meet and sit down for five minutes to talk to anybody in the world, you can talk to about the president of the United States to the biggest actor or actress or the most beautiful girl. I pick like Mike Tyson. Right, right. He's my guy. I I look up to him. Um, that killer be killed instinct. Uh, I I I respect that. Um, even when he bit off Holyfield's ear, I didn't look at it as a bad thing. I looked at it, this guy wants to win so bad that he's willing to bite someone's ear off to win, you know. I mean, Tyson's my hero, yeah. So I although I, I'm worried about him you know, being able to, you know, Roy Jones' speed and stamina, I'm worried about that. I still think I still believe in my heart that Tyson's gonna catch him and I don't think Roy Jones is gonna be able to handle one of Tyson's flurries, so I picked Tyson. <laughs> okay, no. it's a real biased answer, but I like Tyson. Man. And and, and what was the second part of that? When oh, you see that, do you me to want to fight? Yeah, do you ever look at that and go, oh, "I think I could do it again. I'd like to have an, an one or two more fights." You know what? There's the answer to that is no, not at all. And there's two reasons. One reason is, I think when I fought MMA, I trained so hard, and I dedicated my life so much to MMA. That I'm burnt out. I, I, as much as I look in the ring and say, "Would oh, I be nice to make that nice payday and that 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 energy and the excitement you get?" I also do realize that there is a a three month span of preparation that I don't think my body could hold up to. The other thing is, I don't think I can. I'm a wiser person now, and I know that fighting isn't your whole life. I don't think, honestly, I don't think I can fight with the passion. And the will to die, like I used to. So I, I don't think it'd be fair to the fans to, for me to um, fight. You know. They they love me for a reason, and I'm not going to be able to bring that incident out because I really don't think I'm willing to die in the ring anymore. Which is. And that's what made me who I was. How badly did you get injured? Like, what was? How badly were your worst injuries in in the fight game? 
My worst injury was Igor Vubachanchin, where I had a perforated eardrum, a big hole in my eardrum, a swollen brain, broken finger, broken jaw, and I had the liver liver count elevated two times, two thousand times the normal person. So you know, yeah, liver you can die from liver shutdown, yeah. Yeah, and and the 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 liver would uh, process all the toxins from the muscle trauma and yeah, from other injuries. From- they, the doctors told me that it can be a single, your muscles all work together. So because I took so much trauma in my, my the muscles in my face, it the all the muscles all together as a team released toxins that was infecting my uh, liver count. Can, see, th- this so sounds was in, horrific, man. Can you can you talk about the fight a little bit? Like how this fight went well, down? Well, after that fight, I was in I was in a twenty four hour nurse watch for two days fuck and it, it sounds like you got hit by a truck fight, yeah that's what everybody says a russian truck <laughs> but you know the thing is I, I i went into the fight and the reason why i learned the most about myself in that fight is i what i learned is that i the reason why i got into the ring was to build myself as a man and you, if you notice that the fights that I picked, it wasn't fights that I thought I could win. Is the fights that I thought was going to bring me into an adver- adverse situation that would pro- would uh, make me have to grow stronger to be able to survive it. So, what Igor's fight did to me was made me realize that there was nothing more in the ring that I could learn. There's no other than dying in the ring. I don't think I could have gotten more damage in the ring, and. During the damage that he inflicted on me, there was no time in the that my heart folded. There's no time that I've given up thinking that I want out or I'm done. Because even after the first round, when I was screaming in the round, the doctor came in as soon as I got to the corner and looked at my dilated eyes and said, it's calling the fight. And I, I had the idea like, fuck, call the fight. I got two minutes to break. Check me after the two minutes. I'll be okay. You know. And I thought, Igor got a cut on his face. I'm going to hit that cut in the next flurry and open it up bigger and I'm going to win the fight. You know, I, my heart never, my spirit never gave in on that. My body was broken, but my, my spirit was screaming for more rounds, you know, and I realized right there that there was nothing more in the fight game that I could learn. When you were exchanging, when you were exchanging with him, because you were you, like you, you guys were just in the pocket there, just ba 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 ba, and he hit like a truck. Who was it that he killed? Like he almost killed the guy. Like he cracked him. Like uh, Franz, oh, Francisco, so, who was it? Bueno. Francisco Bueno. Yeah, it was him, eh? And he. So that fight is what made me want to fight Igor. That's the fight that made me not even want to make eye contact with Igor when he was on <laughs> when he was on TV. I didn't even want to make eye contact with him. I'd turn the TV off when he'd come when he'd come on, you know what I mean? Different strokes for different folks. <laughs> oh, absolutely, mate. Absolutely. I was I was in the third row of the arena. I was sitting three seats away from Francesco Bueno's wife. When he got knocked out and fell face flat, and he didn't move for a while, you know, it was a little scary. The wife started, the Brazilians are real emotional, yeah, so she started screaming. I mean, it was like, it echoed through the whole arena. She started screaming, and that fucking, and Igor walks off like this freaking guy just taking a walk in the park. The Russians are so cold, eh? Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, it's so weird because half of me wants to just run the other way and never fight the guy. But there was this 
strong magnet in me saying that I gotta feel that. I gotta feel that 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 pressure. I gotta feel that knowing what he can do to a man thirty pounds heavier than me. I had to, you know, knowing that he's knocked out a guy thirty pounds out cold, thirty pounds heavier than me. I know I walk in there knowing how much danger I'm in. And that anxiety, you know, that 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 fear mode that I'm gonna get into. I wanted to experience that. I wanted to it intrigued me to get into that and see. So for me, it wasn't about taking him down and winning the fight. It was standing in a pocket and feeling that fear and see if I'll get scared and, you know, react. And you know how we talked about the Yamatamashi moment? Yeah. I had one in that ring. <clears throat> so my idea was to fake a tackle and stand toe-to-toe till someone gets knocked out. And if you notice that fight, I faked the tackle through a right cross and right there the fear took over and I clinched I clinched with him and in that time that was pretty much two or three seconds it felt like a minute I was right there saying what the f*** are you doing you want to throw toe to toe what are you doing what are you doing what are you doing and then I like fuck that's right broke away and threw toe to toe so I had an experience where I actually experienced the Amandamashi moment and I overcame it and through the ground and pound he gave me, there was not once in the fight that I was thinking that I want out. In fact, if you notice the video, I a lot of times that you didn't hear Egan ask me any questions, but you, a lot of times after I got hit with a good fight, punch, you see me looking in the corner and nodding to Egan, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I was doing that because I was wanting to show Igor that, fuck, you hit me with a, you know, he knows he hit me with a solid shot. And for me to look at my corner and just nod and then act like I'm okay, that's got to be fucking defeating for somebody, you know, so. It would have, you probably would have aged your that brother was, about 10 years though in, in that fight. Egan would have. Yeah. Did you, did you feel your jaw yeah. break in the fight? Did you feel a break? Uh, yeah, I remember when the jaw broke. And you, and. And I, re- I remember when the ear perforated too. Really? Like you felt him hit yeah. you and you go, fuck, you perforated my ear. Boom, you broke my jaw. Yeah, I, I, there was a pop in my ear. It, it, it popped a whole big hole in my eardrum. And and you could, you just kept going. Yeah, well, fuck, what are you going to do? You know, no, but it's at which, already broken. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, I mean, at which point did you, like when did he break your jaw? Did Were you standing up when he broke your jaw? Or were you on the ground already when you with the ground and pound the had jaw occurred? Was on the, ground, the jaw was on the ground right before he perforated my eardrum. Was in the first, I think it was in the first uh, minute after we hit the ground. Oh, man. That was. So I was kind of lucky because I know when you perforate your eardrum that bad, you lose equilibrium, yeah? Yes. And but I was lucky I was on my back, you know, I'm laying down, so it's, there's not much equilibrium I need, you know. <laughs> but how long after the fight did you have Did you have equilibrium problems? Did you have ringing in your ears? Did you have any of that stuff? Yeah, I had it for three months. For three months, you had equilibrium problems? Yeah. And I couldn't travel for three months. I couldn't wet my ear. I had to shower with... I had to, couldn't get my ear wet, I, and I had to drop um, drops into my ear, which was, you know how you get water in your fucking ear and it's yeah. in the pool and you're kind of trying to shake it out, and it's a shitty feeling? I had to put water in my ear. I had to put the medicine in my ear because they were telling me that there's such a big hole that 
It's a direct passage to my brain. So if there's any infections, I can infect my brain. Fuck. Did you have ringing in your ears? For, yeah. You had ringing in your yeah, ears? Yeah, I had as well? ringing, yeah. For how long? Ringing and I, and I couldn't really blow my nose well. And that was all for three months? Three months, yeah. You Got have better after two months, but I still had problems for three months. And then you had swelling in your brain as well. Yeah, but that went down. So the swelling in my brain, I was hospitalized for a week. And they wanted to keep me in longer because of my... Um, the swelling went down in two days. But they, they had to put me through um, CAT scans because the doctor was afraid of bleeding in my brain. Yeah. So he said that the reason why he needs to wait for the swelling to go down is because there could be a rupture, but because of the swelling, it compresses the veins where it doesn't bleed. But when the swelling goes down, if there's a rupture, it'll start bleeding, and then you could die with blood filling your brain, yeah? So I didn't have any ruptures in my brain, so they, they had to take CAT scans every day to make sure that as the swelling went down, they, were, they didn't view any ruptures. So that was okay. And the, just the, the fucking ear was a pain in the ass because I couldn't travel for six months. I couldn't swim or shower would get my head wet. So that was a fucking pain in the ass, man. Fucking wow. <laughs> Again, it it never it never ends. Um um one 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 last thing is just once this covid thing's over, do you still do seminars? Are you available to, for seminars and that do, do you still travel? Yeah, so there's like a seminars I did in Pennsylvania and Canada. There's been a string of seminars that have been five years consistent. They've all been canceled. And um, depending on how those guys are and their financial situation, because I don't demand much. I demand a plane ticket, hotel, and the food money. That's it. Right, right. So if they're willing to start up again, I'm, I'm going to start traveling again. So seminars and my bracelet, open up my bracelet shop. That's pretty much all I really did. And I, well, I plan to continue it after um, this COVID thing ends. So we'll see what happens, you know. I mean, a lot, I know a lot of gyms are closing. The Pennsylvania gym that I did uh, seminars for five years has closed down. So they're no longer there. So Okay. Ensign, man, we could talk forever. I've got about 100 other questions. Man, thank you so much, man. And thank you for being so generous with your time. I will confess one thing, man. It's one of the few times that I, I was saying to my wife, like, oh, fuck, look, Ensign's going to be, she doesn't know who, she didn't know who you were, but I was like, Ensign's going to be on the on the podcast, man. I was so happy. Um, thank you so much, man. I've watched you from forever, for more than 20 years, and uh, kind of stayed with what you were doing, and you did not disappoint, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for your time. Well, you know what? There's not a problem. If you want me on again, let me know. If you want to do a follow-up anytime, you know. I I am who I am today because of martial arts and people like you, the fans, the people who now do podcasts and help promote the art that's made me who I am is something that I'm grateful for and I'd like to give back. I'm appreciative. If I die tomorrow, man, I'm super happy what I did in my life and it's all because of martial arts. So if, if there's any way, I can't fight in the ring anymore, but if there's any way I can give back I'm I'm free to I'm I'm more than happy to do it. So um, it's my pleasure to be on your podcast. And if there's any other time you want to hit me up for another question or you want to do another podcast in the future, feel free to let me know. 
Thank just you. Just contact me. So keep in touch, man. Will do, man. Thank you so much. Take care, Ensign. Look after yourself. Thank right. you. Right on, man. Bye bye. Um, when you when you get the link to this, send me the link and I'll blast it on my social media so people will start watching your podcast more. Thank you, man. I'm gonna do it on in in several parts, and I'm gonna break off a okay. few few of the more interesting things. If you want, I'll tag you in everything. So. Yeah, tag me in all the ones that you do, and I'll share it on my pages. So I got a lot of viewers. So thank you so much, man. See your podcast, man. Thank you. Right on, brother. Thanks man. a lot thank for doing what you do for MMA, man. Thank you, brother. See you later. Bye, bye. Right on, man. Shoot. Good. 